Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Be revolutionary. UMass is the Commonwealth's flagship public research university and committed to the relentless pursuit of progress. Learn more at umass.edu. This is Boston Public Radio. From the Alabama special Senate election, the implications go far beyond Democrat versus Republican. If Roy Moore wins, his victory will send a message that even in this Me Too moment, some men can get away with sexual misconduct. We'll talk about that and other political headlines with Adam Riley and Lauren Dzinski. From there, it's a look at global headlines with Charlie Sennett. We'll get his take on what Trump's move on Jerusalem means for the prospect of broken peace in the Middle East. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Jim Browdy, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said the women who have accused Donald Trump of sexual harassment should be heard. This morning, Megyn Kelly gave us and them a second chance to hear their votes, their stories. We'll open the lines and ask you, in this Me Too moment, is his behavior inexcusable? That's next on Boston Public Radio. WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen is sitting in. So good to see you, Jared. It's great to be here. Jim will be back on Wednesday. The rest of us, you know, take the weekend two days to do our <laughs> holiday shopping. It's fine that Jim wants to take these oh, two. Oh, that's right. He's he's off at the mall, uh, no <laughs> doubt. So anyway, on Friday, the president was in Pensacola, Florida, to talk jobs, the GOP tax plan, the border wall, and to point out the huge crowds he can still yield. The two-hour spectacle could the two-hour, I should say, spectacle could very well have been a visit from the ghost of campaign rallies past. Except Trump did take a minute to focus on Roy Moore's campaign, making his pitch to voters to support Roy Moore in tomorrow's special election in Alabama. We cannot afford this country, the future of this country, cannot afford to lose a seat in the very, very close United States Senate. We can't afford it, folks. We can't. We can't afford to have a liberal Democrat who is completely controlled by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. We can't do it. Can't do it. But can the GOP afford to swear in a man to the Senate who has twice as many sexual misconduct allegations and much worse ones against him as Al Franken, who just left the Senate? Here with us in Studio 3 to talk through the latest headlines from the Beltway to Beacon Hill are Lauren Dzinski, a reporter for Politico Massachusetts. I always screw that up, Lauren. No, no, it's good. And the (laughs) author of Massachusetts Playbook and Adam Riley, reporter for WGBH-TV and radio and co-host of the Scrum podcast. Uh, thank you very much for coming in. Appreciate it. We're going to get to Roy Moore in just a second. But as you guys know, Megyn Kelly uh, had three Trump accusers on her section of the Today Show this morning. Uh, Jessica Lee's the uh, older woman who talked about uh, uh, Trump groping her like an octopus on an airplane uh, many years ago. She's now in her 70s. Uh, Samantha Holvey, who was a contestant in Miss USA, who talked about his staring at her and uh, the other contestants and sneaking around the dressing room when they were undressed, and Rachel Crooks. I'm going to play a little sound from Rachel Crooks. She was a young woman that was apparently groped by the president, or not groped, I shouldn't say groped, kissed by the president uh, and outside the elevator, and she talked about that on Megyn Kelly this morning, too. Here she is. And on one day, I decided to introduce myself because I did see him regularly, um, 
and he shook my hand, you know, and he kind of gave me the normal double cheek kiss. Um, but then he held on to my hand and he kept kissing me. You know, he kept asking me maybe a, a question, where are you from, and kissing me again. Where is this? Again. Where is this happening? It's right outside the elevators, right outside my office. So he kept kissing you? Yeah, he went, I don't know how many times, back and forth, multiple, um, and then he kissed me on the lips. And I was shocked, yeah. I mean, devastated. So he was her boss. She was very young. She still is very young, Rachel Cooks, but this, she was particularly young when this happened. So obviously we're going to be resurrecting these Trump accusers now, uh, which I think is a great thing. <laughs> but do you think it matters, uh, Lauren? I mean, this, this is the development of this national discussion that, that we've been having over these last couple of months. And I think, you know, it would, it would be more concerning and more shocking if, uh, you know, reparsing the details around Trump's accusers uh, didn't come up. Um, whether or not it, anything actually happens, you know, from Trump's perspective, I don't think we're going to see what, what happened with Democrats in the Senate, you know, where, where you know, people were forced to step down. I'm not sure that there's going to be, you know, serious repercussions. But yeah, you know, this is this is this is the development of that conversation and it's interesting because now there's a there's a discussion of, you know, I believe the accusers. And and that wasn't necessarily something that was as much of a talking point back on the campaign trail in 2016. Well, Adam, I wonder if not only will it not make a, a difference for how President Trump continues to carry on his job and public appearances, but if there will even be the groundswell that we have seen with other figures. In a way, I feel like the groundswell related to the president has already happened because I think this whole movement that we've seen play out in the last few months with Harvey Weinstein as sort of the immediate catalyst, the allegations against him, I think that the necessary preliminary development for everything that's happened, including the response to uh, Harvey Weinstein, was President Trump being accused uh, as a candidate for the presidency of having uh, behaved in a radically inappropriate manner with women. You know, the release of that Access Hollywood, grab him by the bleep tape. I don't think that everything that we have seen transpire since then would have happened if that tape hadn't been released and if despite that tape, the, uh, Donald Trump hadn't been elected president. So I think we've already got the Trump backlash. I don't expect there to be a, a new one or a second one following these women coming forward and talking in more detail. Even though we have she seen the conversation shift as it has escalated, people who weren't as ensnared, like Al Franken, who seemed to be uh, surviving the scandal at first, yeah. obviously it was br brought down by it. You don't see the, uh, a momentum coming back in him. Well, I think what you need for some sort of momentum to develop is people who are perceived as allies or supporters uh, or at least neutral parties to start putting pressure on the accused individual. We saw that with Democratic senators coming forward and saying, yeah, Al Franken needs to go. I cannot imagine any national Republican, with the possible exception of uh, who might do it? Bob Corker, perhaps? Uh, Jeff Flake? I don't know. There's no core Republican mainstream that would say, you know, we've heard more about these allegations involving President Trump, and they're really credible and really troubling, 
and he should step down for the good of the office in the country. That it's just not the environment that we're in right now. That's my my take anyway. But but Lauren Jasinski, I don't see him stepping down <laughs> no, <laughs> over no. this obviously, but I do see a, a, a weakened and less believable guy because I see it differently than you. I don't think it was Donald Trump. I think it was Harvey Weinstein. You think Weinstein? I, I do. I th- no, the no, 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 no. I think the Weinstein thing and the Me Too thing. Because I remember when we were talking about this during the campaign, I was getting deluged with emails, mostly from women, saying, I don't believe these women. This is all they're trying to get money. The same stuff we heard about the priests. And, and the, you know, why does it take so long? And again, I said this a million times, but if you don't if you keep asking why it takes so long, do a little research. This is how it happens uh, almost all the time in sex crimes. So anyway, I see him as being much more weakened, but maybe I'm just being Pollyanna. I mean, I, I'm totally on board with Adam here. And also, Marjorie, you were never going to support him in the first place. You know, this, I think for for so many people, this was a disqualifying factor for Trump back when he was a candidate for people who were never going to support him anyway. And so now it, because it was disqualifying for Trump and yet he was still elected, there was, I think there was a shift. I think there was a cultural shift where people then started looking at other people that, you know, perhaps, you know, there was no impeachment process for Donald Trump. But when you see similar issues in other aspects of society, you then understand a couple months after the fact that, well, yes, there is something else we can do. Yes, there is other aspects of recourse. Um, but no, I, I don't think he's going to leave office because, you know, there's a press conference on Megyn Kelly's TV show. Yeah. Um, but but again, it's it's a part of the ongoing discussion. It's a part of the ongoing conversation. And like... If it if it becomes a campaign issue um, on on the trail in 2020, I'm not sure if it will be or, you know, if he even acknowledges it like that's that's a component and that's where it can be weakened. Just from a palace intrigue point of view, the thing that I am most interested in is Nikki Haley. Oh, yes. yes. Well, actually, before you could, we have a sound, and I was just going to ask you about that. So Great we'll, we'll get your take on the other <laughs> side. But here is Nikki Haley, of course, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, one of the president's own cabinet members. This is what she had to say to John Dickerson on Face the Nation yesterday. How do you think people should assess the accusers of the president? Well, I mean, the, you know, the same thing is women who accuse anyone should be heard. They should be heard and they should be dealt with. And I think we heard from them prior to the election. And I think any woman who has felt violated or felt mistreated in any way, they have every right to speak up. I say cabinet member, of course, she's ambassador, but appointed by the president, yeah. had been a supporter. Adam, yeah, how does this, does this oh, change I'm just, anything? I'm just surprised. I don't think it changes anything big picture except perhaps Nikki Haley's place in the Trump firmament. I mean, I was surprised <laughs> to hear her not hew very closely to the uh, Trump loyalist party line, which is, you know, these allegations were trotted out during the election. A lot of them were deemed to be not credible at all. And the American people have made their decision on what they think of these. That's not what she said. And that surprised me. And, and you know, who knows if this is going to kind of open the floodgates of, you know, other Republican women who now see cover, you know, in criticizing this aspect. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, palace intrigue-wise, what does this mean for Nikki Haley standing with the Trump administration? And also, you know, what does this mean for, you know, the conversation going forward? This isn't something that's going to go away. These women, you know, clearly still have interest in talking about it. And, you know, how, how loudly are they going to bang the drum? 
Well, the Trump administration, of course, has already spoken and said these are all false allegations. And uh, maybe we'll hear more from the president's Twitter finger over the next couple of days as people react to these three women being on a Megyn Kelly show. But let's move to the what we started out talking about was the Roy Moore uh, election down in Alabama. Um, it's tomorrow. We're talking with Laura, Lauren Dzinski from Politico and Adam Riley from WGBH and co-host of The Scrum. What do you think is going to happen tomorrow, Lauren? Oh, I don't know. I, so I, I'm, I'm in a couple casual betting pools over this, and I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm willing to disclose it. But no, I mean, I think it's really close. My, fa- my favorite kind of uh, weird nugget about this whole special election, and this special election is truly special and all of the weird stuff that's going on, but the fact that it seems that Roy Moore hasn't been in Alabama for the last couple of days. Like, there are reports by my uh, two of my colleagues that said that he was in, he's been in Philadelphia potentially since, like, Thursday. He, he'd previously been planning to go to the Army-Navy game. Um, I think it's at West Point. Um, pardon my ignorance on that front there, but Apparently, he's been out of the state. He hasn't had public events. And in the final push in a close special election, you know, the fact that he's not out there greeting voters, we can we can recall Martha Coakley, you know, not yes. going and greeting voters in a similar special election. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm so curious. I'm so eager to see what happens. Lauren, I apologize. I haven't read the political coverage. What do they make of his absence and location and maybe Philadelphia or somewhere else. Right. What, what's the explanation? Right. So, so the understanding, as far as as I read it at least, was that he um, had number one, he doesn't want to talk about the allegations, at least as I understand it. Um, you know, and is just not going to have public events around that. And you know, the it seems like the official line is that you know he had a previously planned, uh, you know. He was planning to go to this thing on Saturday in, in Philadelphia. I mean. Yeah, yeah. You know, not not greet the voters and, you know, the most uh, momentous special election, at least this week. But um, no, it's 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 just absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, Deval Patrick was down there. Uh, campaigning for the other side. That's a perfect introduction to my non-prediction prediction Mm -hmm. about tomorrow, which Mm -hmm. is that the outcome of the election is going to hinge on whether African-American voters turn out in big numbers or not, because they can be expected to back Doug Jones. Uh, The question is how many of them are going to vote. Deval Patrick's down there. Cory Booker's down there. I believe both are making appearances with Doug Jones. Uh, President Obama recorded apparently a robocall, mm-hmm. which, as I understand it, has not yet been deployed by the Doug Jones campaign because there's a lot of question about whether an endorsement from Obama might, uh, in, you know, well, it would help get African-American voters to the polls, drive away white voters. President Obama, when he sought re-election, won 15 percent of white votes in Alabama. So I think it all hinges on African-American turnout. Is there a Shelby factor at all here that even oh, he... Oh, yes, the senator from Alabama. He's already voted, said he did not vote for mm-hmm. more, that he wrote in a candidate, who he, a, a high-profile Republican, who he thinks should be written in, didn't disclose who that is, but... I think that it could help. I mean, if the election's super, super close, and it seems like it may well be, that could give license to some Republicans who aren't fans of the Democrats at all, to, to, you know, sort of hold their nose and not vote for Roy Moore because of all the gross stuff he has accused of having done. So, yeah, I, I think that could be a factor. You know, I'm going to shamelessly promote my own column in the Boston Globe today talking about the Roy Moore election. And I thought it was a very depressing um, thing when you juxtapose back in 1991 when David Duke was running for governor in Louisiana. George H.W. Bush came out, uh, Republican, 
uh, and trashed uh, uh, Duke, and uh, so did uh, many state, local, and national Republican leaders. They all said, this guy's got no business uh, uh, running or winning, and they just totally... And then now you have Roy Moore. He's not just a, uh, a, a, a credibly accused stalker of teenagers and sexual abuser of teenagers. He's a religious bigot. He's an anti-gay bigot. He's, from what I read about his foundation, I think he's got tax problems. I mean, he seems to have taken all this money from this moral majority foundation, whatever the hell he calls it, and not and not reported it. Uh, you know, he said that the guy, Ellison, Keith Ellison, shouldn't be seated in, in Congress because he's a, a Muslim. I mean, it goes on and on and on how awful this guy is, not to mention he's a birther and uh, an alt-right hero. Um, other than that. Other than that. <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to mention while I'm shamelessly promoting it is I interviewed this lawyer for one of the Roy Moore accusers who didn't even say he did anything wrong. She was 18 when they went out. Uh, she was, of course, a cheerleader. You would pick her up in her little cheerleading uniform <laughs> and take her out on dates. But she did have her mother's permission, so he didn't. But she talked about um, the death threats, the hang-up calls, you should commit suicide, mm-hmm. the viciousness uh, that not just her, obviously, but these women have endured for accusing um, accusing this guy. 71% of Republican voters in Alabama do not believe the allegations against him. Yeah. So what happens then if he wins? Do the, does the GOP nationally in Washington, do they take the win? Ooh, wow, it's that's... hard to say. It's uh, Yeah, this, this should be a part of the informal betting pool as well. Um, I mean... I think it's clear that the Democrats at least have set themselves up. You know, the the Democrats in the Senate have set themselves up to have the moral high ground to then absolutely go after the Republicans if they do end up, you know, not opposing him being seated. Um, I I don't think you would have seen, um, you know, the the two high profile departures in the Senate if Democrats didn't think that they were going to have to seek out that high ground. That's a really good point. The argument against the Republicans trying to oust him would be, I suppose, the Republican establishment and leadership in Congress has shown they're willing to put up with pretty much anything from candidate Trump and President Trump as long as they think that his uh, his strength and unchallenged position is going to allow them to advance their legislative agenda. And uh, Roy Moore would help them do exactly that. So that would be a reason for them to – It's all about the votes. To, yeah, exactly. Well, can I just mention two other factors I think could, could uh, sure. sway this thing tomorrow one way or another? First is the um, attempted terrorist attack in New York City, which I think mm. has the potential to uh, stir up and drive to the polls Roy Moore loyalists and maybe people who don't like what he's been accused of but think, oh, we need to be stronger on terror, so I'm going to go with him despite what he may have done with young women. Uh, and then the other, you know, I'm having one of those moments right now when you've got a factor in mind and then you forget it. Okay, I got it. Yes, yes. Just long enough. All the, the media's terrible week last week. I talked about disbelief oh, among oh, Republicans yes. of Roy Yeah, Moore. talk about this. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. Help me if I miss anything. Brian Ross yep. incorrectly reporting that WikiLeaks gave Donald Trump mm-hmm. Jr. early access to its trove of damaging information about Hillary Clinton. And then... Uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm conflating Brian Ross with CNN. CNN, they that made was mistake. CNN's mistake. What yeah, Brian the timing, Ro- yeah. Brian Ross said erroneously that candidate Trump had urged Michael Flynn, his subsequent national security advisor, to make contact with mm-hmm. the Russians during the campaign. Turned out he was really talking about after the campaign. He blamed his source. Everyone else blames Brian Ross. But 
obviously, naturally, these things were seized on by President Trump as yep. examples of fake news. And, and the, the Washington Post—they made a mistake. And remind it me was what theirs Twitter. was. Twitter. So it was. It wasn't oh, it Dave, Dave Weigel. Weigel yeah. I think he. Yeah. I think he tweeted out a picture of a smaller crowd, and yeah. then Trump tweeted out a one that was a much bigger crowd, and Trump was right, and the mm-hmm. reporter was wrong. He apologized, but again, the damage was done. And then, of course, you get back to the FBI guy that was a pro-Hillary Clinton right. person, and clearly, if you watch Fox News, the next uh, frontier is to undermine the credibility of Robert Mueller. So you take all that stuff and you add it up, and it might be enough to make some people who who really didn't like what they were hearing about more decide, well, maybe a lot of this isn't true. Maybe it's ginned up by an unsympathetic media. One last thing, you guys, before we break for uh, local and state uh, news. This, this The guy that was... <laughs> This is just such a weird story. This uh, representative, Trent Franks, that apparently was running around offering $5 million if, uh, to uh, aides to become a surrogate. Uh, he has he has resigned. First, I was con- kind of confused about this. Was he saying, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Actually, I, I'm with you, too. And then yeah. I realized, yeah. You know, you know, a lot of people that do surrogacy, they do, this is a crude term, but the turkey baster thing, where you're basically getting someone to volunteer to carry your child with mom's egg and dad's sperm. Apparently that wasn't what he had in mind. Yeah, uh, there there were some concerns. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the um, old-fashioned way. Yeah. <laughs> but the 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 one thing that I that I will kind of seize on. I mean, this is this is a horrifying story, and it kind of gets back to men in power taking advantage of the power differential, feeling like he had the ability to even raise this conversation with one of his subordinates and, you know, the the implications are even more problematic. Um, the, the other, like, weird thing about this story is that, like, right when it was breaking on Friday afternoon, it was also around the same time that the Boston Herald announced that it was going bankrupt also for $5 million. Um, <laughs> or, like, that was that was the relative uh, cost, which so is just, like... you're saying if the Herald and Roy... Or no, no, no. Sorry, no. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, it was someone Someone else made that that point out on Twitter, but uh, yeah, in the in the weird wacky world in which we live, yeah. it was a strange, strange connection. Yeah, but he's, I, just, if I didn't say he's Republican, I should have said he's Republican. So at least uh, we've got someone that is falling on his sword. One of my favorite responses Whoops. to this totally a <laughs> hey, shouldn't have said that either. One of my Sorry. favorite takes on this really insane and surreal and troubling story came from the New York Times op-ed columnist Ross Douthat, who tweeted. All Handmaid's Tale jokes are now allowed open season, Oof. which I think is a, I mean. Pretty, it's not wrong. Yeah, it's not wrong. Which well, you good. see that the people outside, the, the big thing that uh, Roy Moore had the other night down in Alabama, all the women that were dressed up in the Handmaid's Tale's mm-hmm. outfit, the protesters, I thought that was pretty good. Hey, you just, uh, yeah, speeches. <laughs> I mean, you just don't know what to, what's real. What, how do you even digest anything anymore? But that's why you two are here. And we'll talk to you more in a minute. We're going over national and local politics with WGBH's Adam Riley and Politico's Lauren Desensky. Did I say that right? I, Close. Desensky. I, yeah, it's cool. I don't know why we're having such trouble <laughs> with that. Okay. We're disgraced. It's Monday. We are. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're talking with... To talking with, I should say, Adam Riley from WGBH and co-host of The Scrum and Lauren Dzenski. She's a reporter for Political Massachusetts. So let's start with um, 
uh, a little news out of the State House. Well, it isn't news because we knew about it a few days ago. But Stan Rosenberg uh, is taking leave. Uh, his husband was accused of groping and uh, doing bad things, sexual harassment type things, to several uh, different men and saying basically, if we do this, then I can get you some help up on Beacon Hill because my husband is Dan Rosenberg. Three women are have announced that they are interested in uh, taking his seat should things not go well. That would be... Uh, 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 Dorsina Foy from uh, Representative Dorsina Foy from uh, Madison. State Senator. State yep. Senator, excuse me. State Senator. I always forget. Yeah. Well, I guess they're all senators, aren't they? Because otherwise yeah. they couldn't yeah. replace Stan. Yeah. State yeah. Senator. Eileen Donahue Lowell, Karen Spilka of Ashland. Um, what's going to happen with Stan Rosenberg? I mean, he's still, there's still a possibility he could come back. And uh, personally, I'm very fond of Stan Rosenberg, so I feel very bad for his situation. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people do, and there's a lot of. I mean, there's so many questions around all of this. So he stepped down from the Senate presidency through the basically through the course of the investigation and in an effort to make sure that, you know, there's there's no uh, concerns around people who are coming forward. Um, you know, he, he has stepped back. And so now he is he's just uh, Senator Stan Rosenberg. Um, he gave up his stipend that he gets as Senate president. It's like eighty thousand uh, dollars downsizing his staff. Um, and and we don't know how long he's going to be in, in that position. Um, acting Senate president um, uh, Harriet Chandler has basically said that she plans to step down. Uh, will will cede the position as soon as she possibly can back to Stan Rosenberg. But it's not clear when that's going to happen and there's there's also some questions on on if that's going to happen. I mean the the it's interesting because there's two different investigations that go that are going on, but the one being conducted by the the Senate um Ethics Committee is specifically looking into whether or not Stan Rosenberg broke any rules of the Senate throughout the course of this this situation. Um, within the next week or so, we're going to see a special investigator be appointed. Um, that investigator will subsequently look into it. Um, we'll, we'll get some updates as it all happens, but... It, there's there's just totally um, there's there's a lot of unknowns here. I don't know what's going to happen, but I find it hard to imagine him coming back and becoming Senate president again because I think at a bare minimum, even if there is no indication that he was aware of what Brian Hefner was accused of doing, no indication that he allowed Brian Hefner to exercise policy influence uh, on Beacon Hill, I, I think. Because of his decision to make a life with uh, this man who's accused of doing all these radically inappropriate things. Remember, this isn't the first time we've heard concerns raised about Brian Hefner. I think it will leave people not trusting Stan Rosenberg's judgment. Maybe, you know, personal judgment, maybe his political judgment is fine. But it's it's hard to separate those two things. And to me, it is just that that is going to weaken his position so much, diminish his stature, dilute whatever authority he might still have, that I, it's hard for me to imagine him making a successful comeback. And and to just piggyback off of that a little bit, so many of the issues revolve around the fact that in 2014, when these first issues with Brian Hefner and his relationship with, with Stan um, kind of came to a forefront, where he was having conversations with senators to try and talk about uh, committee assignments, which is something that is very um, off-limits, that we then saw... Senate President Stan Rosenberg say that 
as Senate president, there will be a firewall between me and my partner. And so the violation of that firewall or the potential, you know, lack of acknowledgement of it is really the issue. Although it could also be that there was a firewall that consisted of obliviousness to his husband's conduct and that that is what led to the damage. So either way, it's not good. Frank Phillips from the Boston Globe, longtime uh, statehouse reporter, bureau chief up there. He said last week that Stan Rosenberg is going to have to decide between his job and his husband, which seems like a very stark choice. But do you think Phillips is right? I mean, I, I, to a certain extent, yeah. You know, we've, which is, which is horrible. And I think for so many people, you know, Stan Rosenberg is progressive not only in in the stances that he takes on politics, but also he is the first openly serving and openly acting, uh, open, openly gay uh, Senate president who is living with his partner, and you know. Um, Brian Hafner is the person that Stan credits for giving him the greatest gift that he ever received and that it allowed him to live as an openly gay man. But so, but really these issues that, that Rosenberg is now bogged down in and is now threatening his career at the State House all stems from his partner. So, you know, I, it's, it's, it's dramatic, but I don't think that Frank is wrong. I think Lauren conveyed this in her comments, but I, I have to say, and this isn't what we're supposed to be focused on, I find this a very sad story. And it has I nothing do too. To do with I do too. Politics, but uh, Both what you were kids. talking about—that yeah, the, the fact that they bonded over their bonded over their shared experience in in foster care—and that Lauren, as you say, that that Rosenberg has credited Hafner with sort of helping him become a fuller person, be who he he really is out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a it's a sad twist, whatever the the politics. Well, involved. interestingly, I, I I heard that conversation that you had with Frank Phillips, and he was the first to raise it. I think we, where we've seen other people do that with women and stand by your man question. And if the allegations are true, then Stan Rosenberg does have to reconcile what his partner has done in fidelity or infidelity in, in this case, whether anything was actually consummated, but certainly there are allegations there. But it would seem to me that this is a case where perception is everything, because like all of you, I have also thought my interactions with Stan Rosenberg, I've always thought him to be a really quality person, yeah. super nice guy, yes. very, very, very decent. Gentle. Exactly. However, it was when I was reading the Boston Globe accounts and people were very, very upset that he hadn't stepped down. And I was thinking, well, of course, we we have met the man. We know him in a way that by and large the public does not. So... They don't. They don't know this part of him, and this is where perception is is tantamount, right? Yeah, we only have point. a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to mention, especially since you mentioned uh, Stan Rosenberg and his husband being uh, foster kids, Andrew Campbell, who just was uh, elected to be the next. Uh, well, she will be. I don't think she's actually been elected yet, but she has enough votes to yeah, become the next the council yeah. president, January first. She's also somebody that came out of foster care, lost her brother, had a very tough life, goes on to Princeton and UCLA Law School. So this is this. This is kind of a great, um, even though you could say, what the heck is the Boston City Council doing down there? <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, we have an African-American woman follow, following up Michelle Wu, also a very impressive woman heading the Boston City Council. This is a good news story, I think. Yeah, Andrea Campbell is a really, really fascinating individual. And I also have a, like... Um, she, I was actually the very first reporter that she ever spoke to when You're she, kidding. yes, yeah, when I was back at the Dorchester Reporter and back when she was, uh, you know, very, very, very early stages of uh, challenging uh, 
then uh, sitting city councilor Charles Yancey. And, you know, her upset bid to unseat him. And, you know, she she's really she is a part of this new face of, of the Boston City Council. And, you know, looking at the changes that that has happened to the chamber um, in November, you know, now there's what, six women of color um, in in a body of 13 individuals in in, you know, it's a city that is kind of known for being represented by stodgy white men uh, is, is really progressive and really interesting. And I think uh, we would all uh, benefit from from watching what she does from that position. She's a great story. I think she may be a disappointment to anyone who is hoping that she's going to really push Mayor Walsh. Yeah. She endorsed Mayor Walsh for re-election. I remember being at her election night party and seeing Joyce Linehan, the mayor's chief of policy, come in and give uh, give Campbell a great big hug. Yancey, of course, had been a huge thorn in the side to the Walsh administration. Tito Jackson kind of took that role over once Nancy, once, uh, once Yancey sure was has. out. So <laughs> I, I think you talk about, you know, the council, what do they actually do? What they have the potential to do, as you know, is if they're so inclined, they can use the bully puppet, That's true. puppet bully pulpit to, to make the mayor sweat and to press him on the way he is or isn't doing certain things. And I don't think that at least at the outset we're going to see much of that. Yeah, I, th- I think it'll be a, a presidency very similar to Michelle Wu's. It's, you know, very uh, uh, thought-based and kind of research-based. Well, they do constituent service. I shouldn't I shouldn't criticize them. I think they do Potholes. take care. That, yeah, and that's a Potholes big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. You want you want to be able to call somebody to complain, so I shouldn't... Um, it's the, it's the way the system is set up, right? We have a very strong mayor, weak city council. Yeah, but remember, system. like when Tito Jackson was on the council and the, the Olympics battle was kind of coming to a head, he was the one who threatened to subpoena records uh, and I think it's fair to say helped precipitate the demise of the bid. So they can find ways to use their, uh, use their position in a powerful manner. They just frequently choose not to. All right. Thank you, too. Lauren Desensky is a reporter for Politico, Massachusetts, and the author of the Massachusetts Playbook. And Adam Riley is a reporter for WGVH TV and radio and co-host of the Scrum podcast. Up next, Charlie Sennett joins us to go over the global response to the president's decisive move on Jerusalem. That's next on 89.7 WGVH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. Yesterday at the Nobel Prize ceremonies, the Peace Prize winner said the world is, quote, one tiny tantrum away, unquote, from a nuclear crisis. The question is, who's tantrum? Little rocket mans or <laughs> the deranged doters? Dotards. Dotards, thank you. Here with us in Studio 3 for his take on this. The fallout from the U.S. recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and other international headlines is Charlie Sennett. He's a news analyst here at WGBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Charlie, um, great to have you here. We'll get to the uh, tantrum in a minute. But we did have a very concerning story this yeah, morning serious. in New York City, done at the Port Authority, which is a major bus station. Of course, it's where it's near 42nd Street, uh, and it's of course where many subways go through mm-hmm. in the city. So, what do we know? So, what we know is at about 7:30 this morning, in the passageway between Times Square and Port Authority, there was an explosion, um, and it looks like they uh, they they have this man arrested. He's uh, Bangladeshi. He's in his 20s. He's from Brooklyn. I'm not clear whether he is an immigrant or whether he is second generation. Um, but, but 
definitely Bangladeshi and definitely it appears like the device may have gone off prematurely. So uh, what they often called in places like Jerusalem where we had a lot of bombings, we kept hearing it, a work accident. Um, so there are injuries, but but no one has been killed. The, the, the person who was strapped with this device, the Bangladeshi gentleman, is arrested in custody, um, will live and will be questioned and will be grilled. Anyone who's been following this this morning um, knows that it was basically one of those incidents where Thankfully, very few people were hurt. Um, it was intended to do presumably a lot more damage because uh, it didn't go off as planned and it didn't go off in as tightly packed a crowd as planned. Damage to the Port Authority or damage to what? Damage, well, it was meant to kill people and but, it didn't succeed in was, that goal. Was he, was he I, don't think he was, I don't think his target was a structural target. I okay. think it was to, to, to go blow, into okay. rush hour okay. uh, in, in, the, in the heart of Manhattan at rush hour, um, and presumably to kill as many people as possible. But as fate would have it, that didn't happen this morning. Uh, there are injuries, and uh, the the suspect, this Bangladeshi man, um, is now taken into custody in the hospital, going to live, and inevitably will be will be grilled about what this is about. So the question is, why? Like, what is going on? So we know a couple things. We know Bangladesh definitely has... Um, a sort of uh, very militant streak to it. There's a lot of information lately um, in Bangladesh about a rising sort of presence of ISIS. There's a lot of websites that that are uh, f- coming out of Bangladesh that talk about a call to jihad and talk about a lot of the language of ISIS, um, particularly uh, in, in relation to the Rohingya in Burma. And there's a lot of there's just a lot of energy and hatred, frankly, in in that part of the world um, that could be part of the context of this. But there's also a wider context, which is the idea that ISIS has called for attacks on the U.S. in response to the Trump administration declaring Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Um, we've been following this story for a while, but that is probably part of the context of this as well, but we don't know yet. No claim of responsibility. And right now, a lot more questions than answers. And, and at this point, violence has already, and these types of attacks, it seems, have already escalated and have been escalating in the Middle East ever since the, the new recognition of by the U.S. as of Jerusalem as the yeah, Israeli there capital. Yeah, definitely been a lot of demonstrations. There definitely have been incidents. I think the fear is that there's a call for these now. What we really fear right now in counterterrorism is the idea that lone wolves can do a lot. It's, it's this branding of ISIS and of militant groups around the world who can simply um, put out a message that can that can just sort of be a green light to the unhinged to go out and do something on their own. We've seen this. This is a really disturbing development in terrorism. It's almost impossible to fight against. How do you how do you see patterns? How do you find out where these people are? Um, how do you respond to that? I don't know, but I think. Right now, still, just so many questions. We may find out this is something completely different. But I think those two big contexts, rising terrorism in, in Bangladesh and also uh, the idea of a call for attacks coming from ISIS and other militant groups um, in the aftermath of the announcement uh, by the Trump administration to make Jerusalem the capital, to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel in the sense that the United States will now move its embassy from Tel Aviv, where it has been for a long time, to Jerusalem. 
the United States has always had congressional approval recognizing um, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. But there were reasons not to officially make that recognition by moving the embassy because it was always seen as a cornerstone of what are called the final status uh, agreements within the peace process. So this was a you know, a move that like last week I said wouldn't happen. Remember? I was like, I doubt that the Trump administration will actually go ahead and announce that they're moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem because the timing is so not there. And there doesn't seem to be any deal in which the Israelis do that in exchange for freezing settlements or for doing something substantive to push the peace process along. The way this came out really surprised me. And just to just to own up to my own okay. misjudgment, I said it wouldn't happen. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> um, I lived in Jerusalem for five years. I, I know that city well. I love the city. I, I love the complexity of the place. I love that it's so holy and, and beloved by three faiths, um, all of the Abrahamic faiths. So Christianity, Islam, and Judaism feel very drawn to the place. Um, the Israelis uh, obviously see it as their eternal and indivisible capital. Um, but the Palestinians see it as their capital of a future state. Uh, and that East Jerusalem, where the holy city is, where the old city is, and where all of the sort of overlapping sacred space lies, that's in East Jerusalem. And so this has been very contentious. It's at the heart of the peace process. And it's really uh, a a big issue to be thought through. And I, I, I just don't understand the timing of it. What's been the reaction so far? I know there were reports of an Israeli uh, airstrike on Gaza over the weekend because of violent protests, but it doesn't seem, and you correct me because I don't know, that it's been huge or widespread. Yeah, yeah no, I think that's fair. I think that um, the New York Times had a really good piece about that, that Jerusalem was kind of strangely quiet. Um, that there was there were demonstrations, there were loud clashes in the street. But like, if you've lived in Jerusalem, that's not that unusual. Um, uh, I think the the there's a feeling of of expectancy in the air. We don't know where this is going to go. That was the first Friday after the announcement was last Friday, just you know, just a few days ago. Um, typically, Friday is when they have what they call the Day of Rage, and this is where um, around the time of the noon prayer on Friday. Uh, very often, Palestinians come out of the mosque, uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right there in, in that overlapping sacred space where the Dome of the Rock sits atop the Temple Mount, as Israelis would call it, where you have the uh, western wall uh, of, you know, the first temple, or excuse me, of the second temple of Judaism. That is that is the space. That is what is so contested. That is the heart. That is like if you were going to do thermal mapping on religious divides in the world, that acre or two would be the heart of it. And so you typically, Al-Aqsa Mosque up there on the mount, people pour out of that and they pour into a very emotional expression of protest that often gets violent. The Israeli military in the, in the warrens of the old city shut it down. Palestinians try to take them on. That's where the rock throwing happens. That's where the rubber bullets happen. That's where the conf all these conflicts happen. We didn't see that this Friday. Interestingly, and the New York Times did a good piece about that, about there's a strange sense of calm. But in, in many cities around the world, there were demonstrations. And this, this occurs, again, in a much wider context of shifting uh, sensibilities in the Middle East. There's almost like these tectonic plates shifting in diplomacy right now, where the Sunni nations, most uh, prominent and wealthy among them, Saudi Arabia, almost aligning in some way with Israel against the Shia nations, most prominent among them being Iran. Uh, 
And this decision around Jerusalem and Jared Kushner's efforts towards Middle East peace and his time that he's spending in Saudi Arabia, it all occurs in this sense of a, of a shifting dynamic. And I'm not sure where it goes, but even within that dynamic, if we wanted to look at the decision to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, within that context, it doesn't make sense to me because you just made it a lot harder for the Saudis to try to work with Israel against Iran by handing Israel uh, this, this, this real sort of crown jewel of diplomacy, which is they now can say the United States recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That's a big deal. Is this where we see Emmanuel Macron stride in and <laughs> take some sort of leadership? It was fascinating to read in the New York Times last week that he has been elevating his, his role and interest in the Middle East, in what, Libya, Lebanon, Syria? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Macron, yeah, it will suddenly emerge in this vacuum, right? Because uh, the British are quite preoccupied with Brexit. The United States has its own sort of uh, divided society and struggling democracy internally going on. We have so much roiling. And I think Macron looks very calmly across the landscape and realizes he can play a real role here. The French, of course, have a long history in the Middle East, uh, particularly in North Africa, where, you know, they they were the occupiers of Algeria. They had struggled with militants in the 90s. They had, they, they know this terrain very well. But I must say, they're not very well trusted by the Israelis. I mean, the, the Israelis have always viewed them as, as not being friends of Israel. Their diplomacy, their bearing, the way they carry themselves. If anything, the French have not been, been sort of uh, the most welcoming to the Israeli uh, sides of the peace process and have been seen as a little bit more um, pro-Arab. I think that's a great generalization, but I think I could make that generalization after watching it for a lot of time. I think Macron has a role to play. I'm not sure how productive he can really be. It was interesting today to see Bibi Netanyahu go to the European Union for the first time uh, in 22 years that an Israeli prime minister has gone to the EU. And, you know, Bibi arrived saying, like, look, you're going to all do this, right? Because now the United States did it. And the European Union is saying very emphatically, no, uh, that there's there's not a single European nation that is going to that is so far saying it's willing to follow the United States lead. And I think the hardest thing about the peace process, um, and, and, and I've been following this for like over 20 years now, the hardest thing about the peace process is the consensus building that's needed globally to make that happen. And there have been great strides and great setbacks. And right now, I think Jerusalem comes at a time when I just, I just can't parse it out. I can't figure out what the peace process gains from doing this now. That, that isn't to suggest a lot of us wouldn't emotionally recognize that, hey, come on, this is Israel, this is Judaism, and Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Um, That is a practical fact on the ground because they control Jerusalem. It's an emotional truth, and it's a religious history. But it's also a real card to play in the peace process. And I I think we just squandered the card. Um, We had an opportunity to do something more with that. You know, I heard uh, Tom Friedman suggested... Why didn't Trump go to Bibi and say, look, freeze settlements for real. No more settlements. And we're going to do this. And Tom Friedman, who follows this very closely, thought that's something Bibi would have accepted. Hmm. I think we, we, we blew it. We didn't use the card well. And if this is the so-called president author of The Art of the Deal, say, yeah, not yeah. The... I don't get what we got here. I, I think it was just – it just it, – it ignited things. And something that's really interesting – 
And Marjorie, you followed this a little bit, but you know, the Christian right is very animated by the idea of Jerusalem must be the capital of Israel. It's a Christian Zionist philosophy and, and approach. And guess where it happens to burn very bright? Where? Alabama. Oh, yeah, that's so, very true. So is some of Trump's decision with Jerusalem related to domestic politics, that's a very good to point. shoring up his base, to reaching out to Christian fundamentalists? He's got a base in many, many sort of more right-leaning um, Jewish Americans, and you have a sense of some element of domestic politics playing into this international decision. We're talking with Charlie Sennett from the Ground Truth Project. He's also a news analyst here at WGBH. I do want to leave time to get back to what we started out talking about at the beginning, nuclear annihilation being, this is very So we'll shift on to something light from yeah, Jerusalem light. and the potential light. conflagration One tantrum away. the Middle East. Yeah, this happened, um, <laughs> this is from a, a piece I'm reading from The Guardian, talks about the destruction of humankind is one, quote, impulsive tantrum away. Uh, the Australian founder winner of the Nobel Peace Prize warned uh, overnight on Sunday, quote, will it be the end of nuclear weapons or will it be the end of us? Uh, was one of the questions asked over there. And as you say, Charlie, we're going from the frying pan to the fire, I right. guess. Um, what do we make of this uh, of this statement? And, you know, do, is the world thinking we're one tantrum away? And we don't know whether it's our president's tantrum or the leader of North Korea's tantrum? Well, I did, I did like your framing of that question. Whose tantrum are we talking about here? <laughs> I'm I, not I, sure. <laughs> I, think, I think Beatrice Finn, who, who was accepting the prize on behalf of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, I, I read the article here. It, it sort of presumes she is indeed talking about North Korea. Uh, and and its leader having this fearful tantrum, but you're right; it's wonderfully and terribly vague. Yeah. Um, so I think, look, the 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 thing that was really interesting was that um, we have a situation right now where this guy Jeffrey Feltman, who's the UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs, just visited North Korea. It's a very unusual diplomatic visit. It's the first time a top UN official has been there in many many years. Um, and I don't know if you heard it on CNN this weekend, but there was an interview with uh, with Feltman's boss, uh, Guterres, who was basically talking um, with Fareed Zakaria. And they, they were outlining a sort of... He's very good, I think. Yeah, he is good for the yeah. international perspective. Yeah. I go I go to him, like, e you know, like, even over Face the Nation or Meet the Press, because he's got a more global yeah. take, and I, I very like smart. that. I like, I like his take. But look, there's no question that Feltman's read is that the current situation is the most tense and dangerous peace and security issue in the world today. And it, it, it lives and breathes right in the Korean Peninsula. That is where we, have, we face our greatest and most sort of fatal challenge as a world and how we're going to figure this out. But the thing we keep talking about week by week is all these parts fit together. You have to see it in that context. You have a rising China you have a resurgent Russia, and you have a reckless North Korea. And where those parts come together uh, in the world seems to be playing out again and again, whether that's Syria or Jerusalem or, of course, right in the Korean Peninsula where this issue is huge. So it's a time for diplomacy. It's a time for caution. It's a time for carefully chosen and parsed out words. And sadly, that is not who we have in the White House representing the United States. And I think that the world fears that 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 we are on a hair trigger for something terrible to happen. And you're right. I mean, it is... I know you meant the question 
uh, facetiously well, I, or maybe no, even a no, little bit No, I didn't. I, I didn't, actually. I, okay. I'm, I am worried about our own president having a tantrum. I am worried about uh, his having his finger on the nuclear codes. I am. I don't think I'm I wish J- Jim's not here that. to help calm you down. <laughs> Jared, it's going to be up to us, Uh-oh. I think. Are you worried about this, Jared, or am I just crazy? Uh, no, I do not think you're crazy. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. don't. You're not worried about this? I'm worried. I, I believe deeply in the institutions of the United States to have um, a, a concentric circles of decision-making that will effectively not allow something like that yeah, okay. to happen. Now, I, I believe in that. can't stop his trigger finger on Twitter, I'll tell you that. No, but Twitter is not the nuclear code. <laughs> no, it's and not. So, um, it's what not. we need to do is be sure that we continue, as journalists, that mm-hmm. we continue to keep up the pressure, pointing out that when the president is reckless in his language, it matters in the world. Yeah, and Mark has filed a bill about this, you know. Our job and is Mark to keep nervous saying too. That. Yeah, <laughs> we, we all need to be nervous, but we don't need to go over the top okay. with worry and fear. Fear right. not. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. We're going to get through this. Okay. Well, I just hope it's fast. If it does come, that's all I can say. Nope. I hope it's fast. <laughs> <laughs> does it? Keep your expectations low, and then yeah. hopefully you won't be disappointed. <laughs> it applies here. All right. Charlie Sennett joins us every week. He's a news analyst here at GBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Coming up, we're opening up the lines and asking you if, in the context of Me Too, should the president be held to the same standards as Al Franklin, Franken and John Conyers? That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, we kick off hour number two by giving the women who've accused Donald Trump of sexual harassment a second chance. In the context of this Me Too moment, are his actions inexcusable? We're taking your calls and asking you if Al Franken, John Conyers, and Trent Franks have to go. Should Donald Trump go too? I'm Jared Bowen, and for Jim Browdy, has this news cycle of wildfires, gropings, GOP tax plans, and the threat of nuclear war ruined your holiday cheer? Or are the holidays offering you a refuge from the daily ambush of bad news? We're taking your calls, asking you if the news cycle has stolen Christmas. Then on All Revved Up, we'll look at the role race is playing in the Alabama special election, and we'll also look at the role racism is playing right here in Boston, off of the Globe's new Spotlight investigation. That and more next on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. This is Boston Public Radio. I am Marjorie Egan. Jim Browdy has a day off. WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. Hello again. Hello again. Always fantastic to be with you. I know. It is really fun, isn't it? It is. (laughs) So yesterday on Face the Nation, John Dickerson asked U.N. Secretary Nikki Haley about President Trump and the sexual allegations against him. How do you think people should assess the accusers of the president? Well, I mean, you know, the same thing is women who accuse anyone should be heard. They should be heard and they should be dealt with. And I think we heard from them prior to the election. And I think any woman who has felt violated or felt mistreated in any way, they have every right to speak up. 
This morning, Megyn Kelly gave Trump's accusers that second chance to be heard in the context of this Me Too moment. Here's one of three women that appeared with Megyn Kelly. Her name is Samantha Holvey. You know, it was heartbreaking last year when we all, you know, we're private citizens. And for us to put ourselves out there to try and show America who this man is and especially how he views women and for them to say, nah, we don't care. It was it, it hurt. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now it's just like, all right, let's try round two. The environment's different. Let's try again. And we should point out that uh, the president himself talked about uh, on Howard Stern how he had an opportunity to look at women in beauty pageants in different stages of undress. And you can say, well, they're in beauty pageants. But I, I don't think women in beauty pageants necessarily expect to have uh, powerful people looking at them when they're not dressed. And we should also point out that four members of Miss Teen USA, as in teenagers, as in some as young as 15, also accused the president of uh, watching them and looking at them when they were changing their clothes backstage. So anyway, we are opening up the lines at 877-301-8970, asking you if the president should be held to the same standards as John Conyers, Al Franken, and Trent Franks. Uh, Trent Franks is the Republican who has just resigned because he was running around, I guess, asking aides to be the surrogate <laughs> for him and his wife. 877-301-8970 is the number. Lots of people um, have been losing their jobs in the context of this Me Too moment. We were talking about this with our political uh, panel, Lauren Dzinski and Adam Riley, a few minutes ago. I don't think anybody thinks Trump is going to resign over this. Uh, but you do wonder whether this is going to impact him. We should point out that the Trump White House has said this morning that these women are all liars. Um, he said that before. Uh, Ray, Roy Moore says they're all liars, too, even though he previously, before he changed the story, said he knew them and didn't date any teenagers without asking their mother. Now suddenly he doesn't know who any of them are, and they're all making things up. So Trump and Moore, the guy that uh, the president is supporting in Alabama, are both people who've been multiply accused of inappropriate uh, sexual conduct, and both men have denied it completely, and they're supporting each other. 877-301-8970. What did you make of this Today Show event? Well, first of all, with the president, I think there's a level of conviction that has come here. I mean, we go back to uh, Roy Moore, and at first he was either keeping silent or in a light, lighter manner, uh, discount or uh, criticizing Roy Moore for these allegations uh, or the behavior, I should say. And now, of course, he's turned around. He's going there. He's campaigning for him. When Roy Moore, as we also discussed earlier, isn't even in his own state. He's returning today after about a six-day absence for, from the com- campaign trial. But the president is there. Donald Trump has talked about some of his behavior on Howard Stern in the past and acknowledged being in these rooms. And, and when you're the owner of the Miss USA pageant, you're, he, it's a, he kind of owned this behavior or owned this privilege, I should say, of, of allowing himself to be in the presence of these women at various stages of undress. And, I, you know, I keep thinking back to a conversation I had with someone who worked for Donald Trump for a few years. And this is a conversation I had before he was elected president. But this person told me he thought one of the best qualities in Donald Trump that made him a good leader was his conviction, that he once he got something in his head, he believed it and he went for it. And I think that the, that's something we're seeing here. I mean, he's obviously recognized that he can support Roy Moore. He can uh, deal with his own accusations in a way that people will believe him and allow him to skirt them or even skate away from them, essentially, I guess. 
Okay, well, see what you guys think about this. One of these women, uh, Rachel Crooks, was working for Donald Trump, and she was a young woman in her 20s uh, when he, as her boss, accosted her outside in an elevator and kissed her multiple times uh, on the lips, and he kept doing it uh, over and over again. She said it was multiple uh, times. And then the other woman is a woman that is... uh, older than Donald Trump now. I think she's 74 years old. Uh, Jessica Leeds, or she's close to that anyway, and she's the one that said he sat next to her in an airplane years and years ago when she was in her late 30s, and she (laughs) described him as like an octopus with his hands all over her, and she finally uh, moved out of her first-class seat and went back to coach, which is a big sacrifice when you think about it, because anybody who flies knows there's no comparison between first-class and coach. Neither I've not been in first-class. I was in an upgraded economy class once, and that was pretty good, but she gave up her first-class seat to get away from Donald Trump and go to the back of the plane, and um, I thought it was interesting that when her story came out. She's 74 years old now. She's a very attractive older woman, but we all felt compelled to run the picture of her as a 30-something woman uh, because Trump has disparaged the looks of some of the women that have accused him and said things like, I would not choose her or take a look at her. I wouldn't go after her, that sort of stuff. And the, the big question for me is, wh- how, how is this going to play? I mean, there's no question that th- this is a conversation that needs to continue, but is this going to swell? Is this going to rise to the level that, you know, we, we talked to Adam Riley and Lauren about this as well. Will it rise to the, the Franken level, to the Harvey Weinstein level, to the Kevin Spacey level, where they are forced to, to disappear and consider their actions and can more importantly consider the consequences and and have those meted out to them. Let us go to the phone calls. Let's start with Paula in Plymouth. Hi, Paula. Hey, Marjorie. How's it going? Good. Hello. We're here. I think, I, I think that that, I won't even say what I think of him. I think he should be held as equally accountable as anybody else. He feels he's above everyone. He bullies his ways, threatens people, intimidates them. I don't care if he's the president of the world. He should be held to the same standards as every other person who does this. And it disgusts me to no end the females that support him, even knowing what he's done, what he's bragged about, and they still are in his corner. You know, Paul, I wonder if it's a different moment, though. I, I don't think our political panel thought it was a different moment because when the accusations came out against Trump uh, during the campaign, there was a lot of disbelief. Oh, you know, these women are out to make money. Oh, they're going after a famous man. It was the kind of stuff people said initially about Bill O'Reilly. Oh, they're going after a famous They want to get rich. Um, now that we've seen that this is sort of an epidemic in the, in the United States and around the world, really, do you think that uh, it's, it's a different place now in terms of believing women? I, I do, but I'm not sure everybody does, and maybe th- you don't think so either. Well, I think he's, he's convinced everybody that the media at large is out to get him yep. with fake news, even though he gets he shows time and time again that they're not being fake. I would love to see the media, print, news, everybody do a blackout of him for like 90 days. <sighs> <laughs> and do no coverage. He would go absolutely crazy because he thrives on attention. Paula, thank you very so, much. Thank you very much for the call. Our number is 877-301-8970. Of course, he also thrived when he was relegated to the entertainment pages when he was running uh, for president. Remember that? How <laughs> various news outlets decided that he wasn't a credible candidate of their I own know. free will? That was very embarrassing when it turned out he was doing, he was doing so well. Let's go to Anne from Malden. What do you think, Anne? 
Well, I think um, Paula said pretty much uh, my feeling. She, but I, that you even have to ask this question, should the president be held to the same standard as Al Franken and everybody else? Absolutely. In fact, I want our president to be held to a higher standard. I think it's a disgrace. I, I don't know how any woman, like Paula said, could have supported him after that. And, and all the other things he's done, the, the disabled people that he that he ridiculed, and he just keeps getting worse, I think. Every day it's scarier and scarier that but, he's in the and thank office. You, and thank you very much for the call. The issue, of course, is that we knew all this before he was elected, and people voted for him anyway. And you read polls where vast majorities of Republicans are still with him, vast majorities of Republican women are still with him. And, you know... We haven't, we're not that far into the Me Too moment, and everybody got a full uh, listening to this morning. You can get it online again of these women who were very credible, if you ask me, and they're only three of 16, not to mention the 14 USA uh, uh, pageant uh, women, which brings us up to 20. Um, you know, again, I always say this, you know, if, if, uh, if 20 different clerks at the 7-Eleven said, Jared Bowen came in and robbed, uh, robbed a couple of gallons of milk for me. If 20 people said that, there wouldn't be any question. Jared Bowen is a milk robber. But it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> only in these things where 20 people can accuse you of similar things and people say, oh, not a big deal. 877-301-8970. Is it a different moment or does this not matter? I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, he's obviously going to resign or he's going to step aside but I do think I do think it weakens him I, I don't know I, I I can't even hazard a guess at this point because it, it we're just as we've said time and time again it's just uncharted waters and it's really difficult to anticipate how much of a I, I keep fixating fixating on the groundswell element will this even rise to this or will it this be yesterday's headlines uh, very quickly that it because we have uh, encountered these conversations uh, already. There was the press conference right after the debate and uh, after he brought in the accusers of Bill Clinton in the Hillary Clinton debate. So, yes, we have been through this time and time again. So it is hard to believe that it will rise up again and people may be tired of this. Uh, this is a, you know, there was half of the country as an electorate decided to elect him president for, for myriad reasons. Uh, you know, they're weighing things beyond just the sexual harassment allegations. Jacob and Alboro, thank you for calling. Hi, Jacob. Uh, hey, how are you? Um, Fine, thanks. Appreciate you taking appreciate you taking my call. I, I really think we're we're taking a dangerous uh, path here. Uh, I don't think any anybody should have resigned. I don't think anybody should ever lose their job. I don't think any of these things. I mean, we are a country of laws, and uh, we are not um, you know judge, jury, and executioner in the media. Al Franken, as my as far as I'm concerned, is innocent until proven guilty. And the well, same with the president, and Jacob, the same with every single person. Are you, you're talking I mean, about a legal standard, correct? A trial. You don't like or someone gets accused of something. It really violates our entire constitution and the basis of the country. But, Jacob, we didn't have trials for any of the Catholic priests except for Gagan and Shanley because uh, maybe we had one for Porter. I'm not sure. But in any case, we had dozens and dozens of Catholic priests. The the statute of limitations had run, as it has in many of these cases. Should the Catholic priests have continued uh, being involved with children and saying mass when they had multiple accusers of sexual crimes? Would that have been okay with you? (laughs) See, this is the problem, what you're— What's the difference? What's the difference? 
What's we the, the yeah, the difference is we are a country of laws, right? And you are innocent until proven guilty. And so, making people resign, or I don't care what side you're on, because of your opinion, or twenty people accuse you. Just use the thing: twenty people accuse right. the guy of robbing a Seven Eleven. Yeah. Well, that guy would go to trial, right? And he would be; those twenty people would point at him, and uh, he would be convicted if they found but him Jacob, guilty. But Jacob, Jacob, I'm talking about a situation where the statute of limitations has run. So, is your so the priests were not tried either? The vast majority of them. So, should they have continued because there was no trial for them either? Just, just yes, yes or no. That, that's your thinking. This is a nation of laws. Would you laws. like me answer? Yeah. Okay, you keep going, but Jacob. You know but means, right? But is a bad word. But. Okay, Jacob, do you want to tell me whether the priest should have stayed or not? And then oh, we can end this, this conversation. This is, this is the, you know, my <laughs> position is the position of the U.S. Constitution. Okay, Jacob, thanks. So Jacob appears to have been with <laughs> the priest should have stayed. I mean, the only person I think we're going to be able to get is possibly Harvey Weinstein in terms of a legal case going forward uh, because these these allegations are very, very old. There are some more recent ones, but even some of those um, are cases. I'm trying to think of who could actually go forward with a court case. Well, some of the people that Trump accused, one of them is going forward with a defamation case because she has lost her uh, business and lost her reputation because the Trump uh, response to her was that she was a liar. Right. And obviously, a lot of these conversations are coming out now because they're on masse because women feel that they have they now have a confidence that they never had because there are so many other people speaking out at the same time. And this, this is the first moment that they had, uh, again, well beyond the statute of limitations. Let's go to Rachel calling from Boston. Hello. Hi, Rachel. Hi. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm all over the place with this as well. Um I remember when all of these accusations started to come out and they were um, coming out every day and every week, I said, things are going to get very ugly, and they have. (laughs) Because the nation as a whole, we don't seem to have a standard that we can all agree upon about how to handle these um, people in positions of power, especially once they're accused. Because, yes, it is just an accusation at that point, and until things have gone through the legal system... They are accusations. However, we've seen, um, let's say, the public and the nation calling for resignations or saying such and such should be fired. Um, I just believe we should maybe have the discussion about where our standards lie first, because, as you were saying, there are um, so many people have lost their job, be it in the media or politicians, congressmen. And I'd like to go back to Billy Bush, who was a part of that Access Hollywood tape, um, and just remind people that he lost his job simply for being involved in that tape and in that discussion. <laughs> so, And he was never actually accused of any misconduct himself, as far as I understand. Um, well, there's a great irony. We, there's a great irony sorry. to Billy Bush, Rachel, in that uh, he was on the Today Show, and of course we now know that Matt Lauer has left the Today Show because of the many allegations against him. But I think that was probably more of a business decision uh, from NBC's perspective. That, and, and you know, he he may possibly be able to rehabilitate himself because he wrote that great piece. You may have seen it in the New York Times uh, a few days ago, talking about Trump's having said the things that Trump was trying to say he hasn't said. Um, but I think that might have been the idea that you're going to be in people's uh, kitchens every morning when your children are getting ready. And this was someone that they thought had lost uh, 
the selling uh, importance that matters. You know, you know what I mean? I do, I do. And this is kind of my um, question and what boggles me now is you see organizations like NBC when Matt Lauer um, was accused and all that came out. You know, immediately these organizations say, well, we do not want these people representing us. Our standards are such that we won't allow this. But as a country, we have a president who has been accused, um, and I believe in the legal system there are about 17 actual um, accusers that are being taken seriously. Um, so I just wish as a nation we'd kind of get it together and have a discussion about if it's okay for – if NBC has standards that are higher than we do for our own president, where does that leave us? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's ambiguous territory. I mean, even if you speak among your friends, which I think we all have done at this point, what is harassment to one person is not to another. And and how one person feels that they can confront a harasser, you know, another person may laugh off. And so uh, I, I think that we're all in this moment where we're having this major reconciliation all at the same time. And because there's so many varying degrees of uh, of analysis here, I, I'm not sure how we could get consensus, of course, until you get into a court of law where the law is very defined. Yeah, and we're not going to get into a court of law for a lot of these things. But I think generally speaking, if you, <laughs> that if you are in power over someone, you are not – you can't talk to them about sex. You can't talk, touch them in a sexual way. You can't do things that they don't want to happen because – that just is wrong, and I think that you know that to me is a is a fireable offense. And you have to remember in these cases, it's not one accuser. You know, Anita Hill became very famous for accusing Clarence Thomas, who of course is on the Supreme Court now, uh, of sexual harassment. But it wasn't just Anita Hill. No, there were other no. women who never got to testify. So it's usually people who don't know each other, as in the Roy Moore case or in the Donald Trump case, women who didn't know each other. And women who've experienced this probably know while you were being sexually harassed at the office, you had no idea that your boss was harassing a half dozen other people at the same time. They're sort of like serial killers. You know? <laughs> they're, they're not just harassing one person. So I, think, I don't think it's that – maybe it's more unclear than I'm, than I'm thinking of it. The only place I see the unclearness is if it's like an awkward pass. You know, if you're, if you're making an awkward pass at someone because you're kind of a nerdy person and the, the person you make the awkward pass at is, you know, get away from me. But if you say get away from me, they get away from you and there's no repercussions and there's no power dynamic, then that's just an awkward pass. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. <laughs> well, to me, most of it, just to be clear, most of it is harassment, but it, it has been interesting to have these conversations, and especially with women who've worked in various industries over decades, too, you know, where, where they're now considering behavior you know, 20 or 30 years ago and, and obviously now can look at it in a new light and, and wish that they had a, a mm -hmm. license then that they have now. By the way, I get these emails all the time about women knowing all about Bill Clinton's multiple accusers before he was president. That is not true. They may have known in some small sections of Arkansas. We knew about Jennifer Flowers. We didn't know when he was elected about these other women, Paula uh, Jones, Juanita Broderick, etc. That came out uh, later. So it, it isn't true. It, it's, there's a big difference between when we first elected Bill Clinton and when we first elected Donald Trump. Ed and Woburn. Hi, Ed. Hi. Hi, Marjorie. I listen to your show every day pretty much. You and Jim Flowers. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Well, uh, this question is being asked if the president should be held in the same uh, standards as Roy Moore. 
I, I had a I have a little trouble with that question the way it was asked because the standard by definition is not what that means. It's just a level of quality or a level of normal and acceptable. And that's not what these men are doing. These are people in powerful position and they're using they are sexual predators and they're using their powerful positions to get away with anything from groping to rape. The, these women that came forward are brave and are putting themselves, their future, at, in jeopardy right now. You know, I have a 12-year-old daughter and who looks like she's 18, and you see things like such as this happening in all levels of society. So why are these men not being called what they are, which are sexual predators? And people at lower levels are losing their jobs and the one person sitting in the Oval Office is still sitting there. Yep. Ed, thank you. Thank you for the call. I think he is going to keep sitting there. I don't think there's any indication that he's, he's going to step aside over this. You know, there's, it's an interesting uh, question. You know, uh, they, they had a skit on Saturday Night Live kind of alluding to this a little bit, the Santa Claus, the kids coming up and sitting on Santa's lap. It wasn't like a pervy Santa or anything. It was just kind of a, the kids were very informed about uh, all the sexual harassment stuff going on. And so it's a lesson that if you deny it, deny it, deny it, call everybody liars, you get away with it. But if you admit that there may have been some incidents that you're not proud of and you you apologize for them and blah, 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 um, uh, you resign. I mean, that seems to be what's happening now because the two people that haven't admitted it are Roy Moore and Donald Trump. Yeah, we're going to see the opposite in Conyers and, and Franken, although they didn't – surely they didn't want to be stepping down. They recognized their behavior. And again, to go back to your milk analogy, when there were a lot of accusers and they were escalating in both of those cases. All right, coming up, we're shifting gears and asking you if the news cycle, a lot of what we've just been talking about, has stolen Christmas. That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I am here with Jared Bowen, who's filling in for the vacationing. Jim Brady. Jim Brady will be back on Wednesday. Jared's going to be at the library with me tomorrow. I'm very excited about that. So we are shifting gears, as Jared just said. In this news cycle, where it seems just about every person is being outed for uh, sexual transgressions, where there is one natural disaster after the next, where the GOP tax plan could upend not just our financial stability, but health care, infrastructure, and the environment. Not to mention the Nobel Peace Prize winner saying we're just one tiny tantrum away from, from the apocalypse. We're asking you if all this has ruined your holiday cheer or has it done the opposite? Are you so rattled by the news you haven't had the time or motivation to shop, send our holiday, holiday cards or decorate? Or have you used this holiday season as your oasis from the news? Have you surrendered to the Hallmark Channel Christmas Film Fest? Are you blissing out on Spike Eggnog? And the holiday lights. Our number is 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Okay, Jared, so are you more into Christmas because we're all in these uh, fraught times, or is it ruined your Christmas cheer yeah, as well? Uh, to, to be honest, I think I have been in this complete work frenzy. It's it's always busier this time of year because there are so many productions, so I'm getting mm. around to this and that, and I, I definitely, absolutely feel the weight of everything, as I'm sure most people do, of everything that's happening right now. All of the sexual harassment allegations, it's just it's so painful to, to learn about, to read about, to know that missiles could be hovering overhead, <laughs> ready to rain down at any I moment. Know. The fires, the storms, knowing that parts of the world aren't getting back up on their feet. But 
But I will tell you, for the, for the first time ever, I watched one of those Hallmark Christmas movies. Which the, one? The other night. I, I watched The Christmas Train. A friend of mine called me. She said, you're, you're coming over. We're having pizza. We're just going to you know, relax on the sofa with blankets. And, oh, nice. And, and maybe a little bourbon was involved there as well. We watched The Christmas Train on the Hallmark Channel. And by the way, I'm also somebody who the last thing I want to do after covering lots of arts all the time is to necessarily sit down and watch another movie. I want to just converse or something. But I loved it. I loved the, just the escape for, for a couple of hours. And it was really, really fun. And it did get me back some of my Christmas cheer, Marjorie. Okay, you know, it was really depressing. I was stringing some lights in the tree yesterday while watching Meet the Press. Oh, God. <laughs> really? <laughs> You're supposed to be having I know. Christmas carols. You're supposed to be and... having Christmas carols in the background, or at least my favorite, you know, schmaltzy Christmas um, movies. I mean, I love Love Actually. A lot of people say it's a ridiculous movie. I mean, I know all our staff. They just hate it. They think it's just sexist and misogynistic and ridiculous, which it probably is, but I watch it every year anyway. You've got mail. I love those Tom Hanks movies. You know, that's always... Oh, that's I have my whole stack. Oh, yeah? What not, else do you like? None of which I've opened yet this this year, uh, well, I too love Love Actually, Love Actually, I Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol. Which one do you watch? I watched the 1938 one. Okay, the original. Is that the original? I think it was the first, okay. or close to the first, okay. and then uh, and then uh, Elf. I was going to say Elf the Musical, but no, just the regular Elf, oh, I love Elf. <laughs> film in Home Alone because that's Home I remember Alone watching that every too. year when I was a kid. Oh, that's great! I absolutely love I absolutely love that movie, and I like and my favorite animated ones too. Which I love the Grinch that stole Christmas, and I love the Snowman, which I think debuted on, right here on PBS. I think it was a PBS show. Did you yeah, you were that mentioning one? that the other day. Yeah. I've, I've oh, never seen it. People that haven't seen it, it's called, just call it The Snowman. It's animated. It's uh, no talking, just music, but it is so – you'll be in tears. You know what? Speaking of the Grinch, you know what I love? You get your little holiday cheer in 30-second bursts. Mm-hmm. There's this L.L. Bean commercial, which I see in the morning. I don't know if you've seen it. And you saying the Grinch made me think of it because it's set to the Grinch music, and it's about this family that wakes up. The kids wake up, and everything has disappeared in their house. They have no Christmas, and then they look out the window, and it's all outside because, of course, it's for L.L. Bean. So the whole outdoors is decorated uh, for, for Christmas morning. It's charming. It is. Okay. I'll look at that, too, because I love those little Grinch kinds of things. Okay, let's take some calls. 877-301-8970. Are you too frenetic about the crises in the world? Every place you turn to concentrate on Christmas? Or are you deep diving into Christmas and just blissing out in front of all these holiday movies to get away from all the depressing news? Let's start with John in Austin. Hey, guys. How's it going? Great. Hi. Um, I, just, I had some thoughts. Um, I think for someone like myself, I've been pretty involved in politics my whole life. Uh, and for a long time, people weren't interested in what was going on in the world. And they could sort of, re- you know, reside to their own bubbles kind of. And so I think right now, you know, one of the benefits that a lot of people are getting involved in a lot of these things that have been going on under the surface are sort of coming out. And so that's actually been really hopeful for me uh, right now. That's kind of nice. That's true. Yeah. yeah. It has stirred people in a way that we haven't, I feel like I haven't even seen in my lifetime, maybe. Okay. John, thank you. That was sort of, that was very uplifting. Thank you for the call. Let's go to Jane in Newburyport. Hi, Jane. Hi. Are you there? How are you guys? This, this is, yeah, this is a great uh, show. I, I, I'm sure you're getting a million calls, but it's thrown me over the top finally with uh, the Al Franken thing. Yep. I really didn't know him very much until lately, and I just started watching him. I never, my kids watched SNL, Saturday Night Live. I never did. Couldn't stay up. But I really want proof, and we've got to change some laws. I agree with that one lady that we've got to have statute of limitations that go 
that disappear. You can anytime come forward. But do you think it's time? Uh, I've got three daughters to raise women when something happens like that. You can stop. Don't. And you document it. And you have a place where you can file it with some court, a hearing court. I just, and I feel for men because they've got a bullseye on their back right now. What if they didn't do a thing? And what is the proof on Al Franken? I have read and read, and I'm not sure what it is. So, well, it's again, it's it's eight women, and maybe they're all in this big conspiracy against Al Franken. But I do think, Jane, I think things are much, much different now. Part of the reason none of these women came forward before, there was no one to come forward to. And I think part of the reason women now are are not putting up with this is because their mothers are telling them, you know, straight, you know, we're not, no, if anybody touches you in a way that upsets you, come and tell me, sweetheart. Don't, strangers or, or even Uncle Joe, no, you own your own body. Nobody's entitled to touch you. We didn't hear that uh, when I was, when I was growing up and there were no, um, women weren't believed. So I think when you said to your boss, knock it off, and those of us who are old enough to have grown up in sexual harassment central, you could say to your boss, knock it off, but but you might lose your job or you might get your hours cut or you might have some retaliation. So it made it very, very difficult. And that's what we heard people saying about in the Harvey Weinstein thing. Nobody feels that sorry for Hollywood actresses, I guess. But if you want to make it in the movies, Harvey Weinstein was a vehicle to make it in the movies. And if you ticked him off, that might be the end of your career. Well, yeah, And you have to, I, I think at least as we're talking about things you're doing to deal with all of this, you have to grasp on to the fact that maybe that is the silver lining here. As for, for young women, for my young six-year-old twin nieces, they're going to yeah. hopefully be coming up in a world where this will never be a factor in their lives. And if it unfortunately is that there will be recourse because the culture has completely changed and, and, and it just won't be allowable. So I, I think if we're ever going to hold on to glimmers of hope... You're, you're looking at the emails. What's coming in? I'm, I'm laughing because Allison just sent an email and she said, I need a distraction from all the awful news. So I scheduled my colonoscopy for the oh. holiday season. Well, you do get a nice yeah. sleep out yeah. of the colonoscopy. So that's. That's right. And you get all those drugs, right? You get all those drugs. <laughs> Thank you, Allison. There's an idea for us all to consider. 877-301-8970. Are you too depressed to enjoy the holiday season or are you in the other direction where you're so depressed that you're diving full throttle into Christmas movies and nostalgia and eggnog spiked with very good brandy? And grasping onto the 30-second L.L. Bean commercial like I am right now. Let's go to Corey calling from West Roxbury. Hi, Corey. Uh, Hi there, guys. Um, So I just want to say that every year I do a card, um, and this year I put on it that it's been a weird year. Because for me personally, it's been a great year. Um, I've traveled a lot. I've done a lot of great things. And so, you know, you kind of brag on your cards. It's been a great year. But I can't say that because I feel like the world is ending. Maybe So I, I feel like I can't enjoy the year as much as I would like to because I'm so worried all the time. Yeah, I think a lot of us, you know, are, are I, I feel like I'm addicted. And part of it is because what I do for a living, you know, the news. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I should be able to read a book or read a magazine that isn't about some breaking news story. It's like the thing they had on Saturday Night Live. All I want is to get through one day without a news alert on my phone. <laughs> you feel that there's a constant emergency. And I feel like this guy, the president, has got me kind of in the – 
he, in, my, in his clutches, even though he has no idea who I am, and I'm just a little news reporter from Boston. But you know what I mean? You can't get away from him? Well, I, I think we also feel just tremendous guilt, especially if you're beyond what is happening in politics, but the fact that so much of Los Angeles is on fire, that the, the islands still haven't recovered from the hurricane, and I, I think about that constantly, that I, I, I need to keep acquainted with what's happening there because, I mean, I, I just imagine if I were in that situation, it's inconceivable to look across the world and see that people are able to go on the, with their lives, so we at least have to be aware. And it's, it is hard to do that when you're reading a book because your mind inevitably drifts and you think because the news comes so fast and furiously these days that you need to check in. Yeah, I had to quit my book club. Did I you just, really? I did. I had just no time to read these books. Or is it just because busy. you didn't like the books that they were choosing? No, well, it was partly that. I mean, <laughs> sometimes you think to yourself, there's only so much time. I'm not going to devote it to a book I don't like. But I love getting together with the other women. We had a, a three-generational ge- thing from, like, women in their 20s, women in their 40s, women, like, in their 70s. And it was really kind of cool. Everybody had a different perspective on the books. So that was really kind of fun. But, you know, I have, to, I have to go to bed with my iPad now and, you know, check out Real Clear Politics and the Drudge Report and uh, CNN and see what, the, see what the news is. I mean, you have to, like... It's constantly in your head. It's very upsetting. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. But I would really enjoy, perhaps, um, you know, just spending the whole weekend watching Love Actually and forgetting about all this kind of stuff. Uh, where are we going? Let's go to uh, Pete in Denham. Hi, Pete. To talk about all those sentimental moments, you know, an angel gets its wings and wonderful yes. life. You know, Love Actually is full of them. Yeah. And, so you get a little weepy. They they really affect us, at least me, in the holidays. Well, Muppets, Christmas Carol, Tiny Tim sent me to the floor. I mean, weeping like a baby. Oh. <laughs> so I feel I feel like that. Even that sentimentality is sort of heightened and really sort of extreme now because, you know, we just feel sensitive. We're, like, so overwhelmed, as you've described. We're just constantly barraged. So that was it. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, that's a very good point, a very good point. I feel like I'm constantly barraged. Don't you? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's nonstop. And my friends that have nothing to do with the news business, a lot of them feel the same way too, that they, they, they just feel like they're sort of, there's this low-level anxiety all the time. You know what I mean? 877-301-8970. Seth from Salem. Hi, Seth. Hello, Marjorie. And hello, Jared. How are you Hi. guys? Hi. Hi. Great. How are you? Good, good. Basically, my two cents on this is that we need to have, we basically need to keep the holidays in our hearts or else we're basically going to become like Scrooge. And for me, one of the things I do is I do holiday pops. I go to holiday pops oh. and I participate in the community band in Salem. So I'm I'm all for the holidays. Let's keep the holiday spirits and, uh, and peace to everyone. Peace on earth. You know, thank you very much for that call, Seth. That's one of the great things that Andres Nelson, who's the conductor of the BSO, has said, and so is Keith Lockhart, who's the conductor of Holiday Pass, which is spectacular every single year, is that music is such an escape, and and it can really work to get you to a different place. Well, what I love about the, the Holiday Pops concert is that it is the same, really. I mean, you, you walk in in Symphony Hall. It's the same Symphony Hall that's been standing for more than a century. There are the same traditions. You know what you're getting. It is like being wrapped in a warm blanket because it is so great. Of course, Keith programs it differently every year, so you're hearing some different music, but there are some staples that you always hear, too, like Sleigh Ride, which, of course, is a Pops commission. But I love it for that reason, too. Even if 
they didn't ask me to narrate the the uh, the ones the night before Christmas this year or a visit from St. Nicholas. Are you narrating? No, I wasn't asked this year. I've you, been fired. You, so even was, uh, even you weren't asked either. Yeah, you weren't either. Well, that makes me feel better. So yeah. even though I have been cast out into the cold by, <laughs> by the Boston Pops, I still I agree with Seth. It's fantastic. And you know, you think of all these great composers, like all these Russians and these Germans that managed to write beautiful music through much worse travails than we are going through now. You know, I mean, I don't think the Russian Revolution was much fun, was it? No. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But you quit your book book club, so you can't read about that anymore. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Let's squeeze in a couple more. Mary from Dartmouth. Hi, uh, Mary. Thank you for calling. Hi. How are you? Great. Hello? Great. We're here. We're here. We're we're waiting. (laughs) So I'm a mom of three, and I will say, like, it's been a challenge not to feel cynical as you're trying to kind of keep the positive of the Christmas season and, you know, I think that as you look for those places, when you know we watched the uh, the Biden um, last night on MSNBC, and I think just finding kind of positive figures, you know, even we're thinking as a family of redoing some of our Christmas shopping, you know, looking for gifts that are just a little bit more personal. I think this year, just to kind of, I don't know, just it's making all of us rethink, you know, how are we going about our days? How are we trying to stay positive as a family? That's very nice. Thank you very much, Mary from Dartmouth. We just got a couple of emails here. Uh, Art from Westbridge Order says he was doing okay the other night when halfway through Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the toys on the Island of Misfit oh. Toys accused Hermie the Dentist of inappropriate touching. Oh, no. <laughs> That ruined the whole thing for him. And then Gabe says, this holiday season, I'm stuck between wondering why I'm single and wondering if it's worth getting into a relationship with nuclear war seemingly imminent. <laughs> so, uh, thank you very much, Gabe. We appreciate that very much. No, just live for the seconds now. That's, that's right. That's, that's right. That's, that's all right. we can do. <laughs> all right. Coming up, it's, all t- it's time for All Revved Up, so keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I am Marjorie Egan. Jared Bowen, WGBH Executive Arts Editor, is here. Jim Browdy has the day off. Hello again, Jared. Hi, Marjorie. Okay, here with us in Studio 3 to take on the moral dilemmas of the day is just Irene Monroe. She's a syndicated columnist, religion columnist, and the Boston voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail. Emmett Price had an emergency, so he cannot be here with us today. Um, Before I jump in here, I just want to mention that the mayor of Cambridge has selected Irene Monroe as a 2017 Luminary Award recipient for serving as, quote, an inspirational leader and powerful social activist for the city of Cambridge. Congratulations. Congratulations. Why, I didn't you. know that. Congratulations. That's really? fabulous. Thank you, thank you very much here. Um, I'm a little sad today because uh, I miss my buddy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I hope here. everything's yeah. okay. Yeah, I do too. So we're going to, uh, you know, so I ask uh, our listenership to certainly keep him in their yeah. thoughts yeah. and prayers. Now, hold, now uh, Cambridge, I know, switches mayors all the time. I'm not even sure who is the mayor of Cambridge. It's um, Mayor Denise Simmons. Oh, here. she's still there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the interesting thing about um, our, our politics, 
politics, the People's Republic of Cambridge, uh, we don't have the luxury, <laughs> uh, like many other cities, to choose our candidates. It's done on preferential balloting, so it's a, it, it's supposed to be more egalitarian. So Yeah, it's kind yeah. of a weird system, if you ask me. It's, I think it's an antiquated system, is it not? I mean, I'm not from here. Is that, is, isn't that how they I did it? Cambridge is so bizarre. Who knows what goes on over there in Cambridge? That <laughs> is the home of Jim Brown. I was going to say, what, the one day that Jim is out. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's out. He's out doing his shopping. Well, I mean, Monroe. Let's start with this big spotlight team uh, piece that was in the Boston Globe, looking at racism um, in America. We've had a lot of uh, talk in the mayoral season. Michael Che, instance at Fenway Park. Michael Che said it was the most racist city in America. Uh, we had the bad incidents with the ball players at uh, Fenway Park uh, being called the N-word and so forth. Um, I'm sure you read this piece yesterday. It was the oh, I did. The and, and as you realize, I think it's a seven-piece series because this morning uh, another one showed up in my uh, right inbox. Right on the front page. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it, basically what it's saying is that Boston has not made uh, much progress. If you look at the neighborhoods of Boston, they're still very segregated. Uh, the vast majority of, uh, of uh, African Americans are in Matpan, Roxbury, Dorchester. You look at um, the power in Boston, they have this wonderful statistic. Well, it's not so wonderful, actually, but it's talking about uh, managers in Boston. There are very few African-American managers, and if you look at the numbers from the series they did in 1983, here we are in all these years later, and things really haven't improved. So What's your take on this? You know, uh, it's so interesting. I didn't know this was coming out, so um, so it was a shock. I mean, I, I'm always glad, you know, uh, to see these kind of reports because, one, it's affirming uh, for uh, the many millions of uh, Boston citizens of, uh, of African descent who say Boston is, is, is terribly racist. It's affirming for why my friends uh, from um, Brooklyn say, you know, there, there's something something not friendly about uh, about the place, and it's 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 chilly, and it's just not the wind chill factor and stuff. And and I and it's um, it's it's uh, sad. I, I mean, I was sad as I was just going through because it's a long piece. Uh, nothing shocked me more than to realize that uh, our net worth, meaning as a medium net worth, is $8. Yeah. Yeah. That that's that says absolutely a lot. It reminds me though of of what um, what Will, William Faulkner says that uh, he would say that Boston's racial past is not dead, is not even past. I, I think there are a number of reasons uh, why, why we see this here, and I and and I know that Marjorie, <laughs> you're not going to like what I have to say. Oh, oh, here we go. Intersectionalism. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is Irene's favorite word. And I well, always say, what does it mean, Irene? No, it's really important because I think it helps us to give a much get a much more nuanced. Uh, kind of look at stuff, and and it, it and it'll gauge us both more. So I think that, and this is from someone who, who you know, grew up in a black community, you know, in Brooklyn, then came up to Wellesley, and then began to see whiteness very differently uh, as an outsider, and then come back again to you know to Tin Harvard, and and then see then why things have not changed. But I have to say, and I say this to you, Marjorie, because I think you're native from here. Are you native? I also am. Yes. Oh, okay. But I just think that when you look at race at Boston and in, in Boston and not look at it from the, here it goes, intersectional lens of both race and class, I think we miss how poor whites and blacks have been pitted against each other for oh, for totally. centuries from from what I would say the uh, the draft right 
during the civil rights movement to present day. And what I mean by that is that a classic example of what I want to just share with you is that, again, that we could look at and, and look at it and not so be so tense about it. But let's be realistic when we look at the Boston bus crisis here. Truth be told, who would really want either child to go to Southie High or to Roxbury High? We want, a chi- we want our children to have a leg up and a foot out, right? And so what we don't look at is how – I think this would that, – that, that helps to sort of illuminate my point. Where we say that um, race – is America's original sin, class is our hidden sin. And I think that we don't look at that enough in terms of how poor whites are constantly pitted against each other. And so, and what what particular group keeps these groups um, at each other? You know, I am so glad you said that because um, from what, from so much was written about busing, it was interesting. They were going to bus in Brookline, which is a much more affluent uh, suburb than, than Boston. And there are very few African Americans in Brookline, but it was parents went crazy. It wasn't a race issue. It was I don't want to put my five year old on a bus and go fifteen minutes further away. Now in busing in Boston, you had parents in South Boston, parents in in Mattapan, putting their five year olds on a bus to go an hour away into hostile territory. And yeah, a lot was a lot of that racism. Absolutely, oh, but yeah. a lot of that was just. My little baby that could go to school right across the street from me, and it, it changed. I think the class well, issue was so huge. Well, I'm a child of, of, of busing, so I do well, understand. Now, so I do understand that, that that's why I kind of looked at busing very differently because I couldn't understand as a five-year-old, and here I am, you know, in, in Bed-Stuy. Why are you sending me way out to this, to this, to this white area here? The fear that comes with that as a, as a child and not understanding the eggs being thrown at you, the N-word being flung at you. So I think that what happens is, is that when we, when we got to look at the way whiteness not, not black people, but whiteness is constructed in these in these communities that keeps this kind of tension going. And then what happens is is that I think the tension that you see between poor whites and and blacks is a buffer, a, really a buffer to what the real the real issue that is keeping us going at each other. And I think another thing is I always remember a quote by James Ball when he talks about the price of the ticket. And he says here, you know, folks who migrated here from Europe, you know, there's a price. You paid a price by buying into this notion of whiteness. And when I do anti-racism workshop, one of the two questions I always ask, which I'll ask you too, is that how are you white and how white are you? Real Marjorie, help me. <laughs> well, I'm pretty damn white. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, 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 the one thing that has helped me is just being a reporter and having an opportunity to talk to people and interview people and cover situations that I would not get to be involved with. But that doesn't, I mean, I don't understand no. what it's like to be an African American. When I see a cop, I think the cop is going to help me. I don't think the cop is going to shoot me. So my experience, I don't, I, right. I cannot so, understand. So, so, what, like- so what you're describing is clearly white privilege. But what I'm asking you is, you know, when I'm, what I'm asking you is, you know, you know, uh, how white are you? When did you get your white ticket? Basically, when did the Irish become white? You know, when did the Italians become white? When did the Jews become white? Because there's a loss in buying into this white identity. And whether you w- want to be, you know, you're complicit into this note. That's the word for 25, uh, yeah, complicit. Yeah. You become complicit, even though you have good intentions, uh, in terms of upholding this notion of white supremacy. Yeah. Let's, 
Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I have to ask you. I, I'm still reeling over reading today's piece. Have you read today's piece? Yeah. Which is oh all about God. the construction of the seaport. So That's here we right. are in 2017, and you might hope with all of your best hope and intentions, or certainly I have, that we are we, we, we've made some progress here. And then we read about this neighborhood, the seaport that has been constructed in this city at this moment. That is predominantly white. That's right. And speaking of numbers, the $8 number was horrifying, and so was the other number this morning that, what, mortgages in the seaport, I think three were given to black families. That's right. Right. As opposed to how the hundreds that have been issued to... That's right. And it's pervasive, this kind of structural inequity here. So I'm in Cambridge, known to be a bastion of liberalism, right? And so you can go down the main drag, which is Mass Avenue, and you can't count nary a one black-owned business. You know, and you would say, well, what is that about? And and that you begin to see, you know, that while we can change the attitudes of, of people, and, and some will say, and I've noticed that, that you know, you will, you will see a among particularly white liberals, they can talk the language, but they can't walk the walk. And so, you know, what price do you pay in, in, in examining not only your white privilege, but, but the way in which you keep these kind of structural inequities in, in place? So you, you can give me the language of, of civil rights and, and, and of liberation, but not, not in terms of the, the needed, you know, paradigm shift to bring about people of color. So, so you came from Brooklyn and and I think a lot of us are struck when we go to other cities that there is a much more visible African American middle class. That's right, and, and that you can go as in the various story, pockets. Yeah, the story points out you go to Fenway Park, you don't see anybody black. You, you go downtown, you don't see anybody black. So what is it? What is it about Boston mm-hmm. that makes us? See, you, you go to Atlanta, you see this huge uh, black Chicago, middle class. Abs- Chicago, absolutely. Everywhere. Now, and if you go into Cambridge, now if you're looking for Thea and I, you'll find us because we're the only blacks <laughs> more than a square block away here and stuff. So, yeah. what is it about Boston? Uh, it's it's quite it's it's so unwelcoming. Let me let me give you a good classic example. So, you know. People always think that New Yorkers are uh, uh, well. We are a little gruff. I, I, I will say that, but but we're friendly, and so you can walk down here. No one will ever speak to you. You know, people here say good morning. You know, I'm not here. I'm sorry. In New York, we'll say good morning, hi, whatever. You know, I, and so here, you know, people don't even look at you. You, you. you become invisible. But why though? Is it is it a hangover from busing? Is it the hangover from no, cause the it's Irish? Before, you know, long before busing, long before busing here. I mean, that just heightened the problem yeah. here and stuff. But you were going to say about uh, what were you going to say? I was going to say, and and since I am Irish, um, I. I can say that the Irish have not been particularly in the forefront of the civil rights movement, or there was a lot of Irish in South Boston that were at the worst intersection. That's right, because what happens in this what I call the conceptual trap of whiteness, see that you will buy this notion of whiteness over over the looking at what what your white ethnicity really means in the context of American, you know, ideology is that we have always been pitted against each other, particularly white Irish and blacks. And that so in doing that, we miss a couple of things here in that that there was white Irish slavery. You know, and particularly you see it in the Caribbean islands, and that as white people, really, you were considered. You were in Boston, Brahmin. You were considered uh, uh, expendable, and so all of those sort of confluent kind of factors play in in terms of 
what keeps the kind of racial paradigm and hierarchy that we have here and stuff. But, you know, I, I, I like to just blame it. All, you know, it's easy to blame it like all oh, the Irish, the Italians here. But, you know, now you Harvard, play the Brahmins, too. Yeah. The, <laughs> now, see, but, but I kind of feel like that's where the where, it's not blaming, but that's where lens need to be addressed here. That that how they have kept this kind of racial and class hierarchy. That's the group that needs a, a kind of, uh, you know, sort of deconstruction. How long have you been here for a second go around? Uh, too long. <laughs> <laughs> but how long is that? Well, I came here in the 90s. And have, has, have you felt any change? So let me tell you. So when I first came here for Wellesley, you got this orientation um, from, from the African-American sisters that said, don't go into, into selfie. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. That. And, and that. Okay. I got that. But then when I came for orientation for Harvard, they said, oh, you know what? Don't not only not go into Southie, don't go into Chelsea. Don't go into parts of Somerville. Like I think it's what's called Winter Hill. Is that, that is that a section up there and stuff? Yeah. And so it's it's just very, very interesting here. And, and, and I think what's very. Oh, Charlestown. I think. I th- oh, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Yes. That was not a <laughs> yeah. safe place yeah. to be yeah. after yeah, a- yeah, absolutely. Ab- yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely here. You know, p- this story, people should really read the- this series. One of the things, we've heard about this before, but they really document how someone calls up for an apartment and says, I'm John Smith, and he gets the apartment, and someone calls up and says, I'm Tanisha Smith. Or oh, Jamal. Um, yeah, that's yeah, right. And, Absolutely. And, yeah, that, that sort of thing. And talks about s- suburbs that where uh, African Americans did not feel, affluent Americans did not feel comfortable in Milton, that there's much that's more right. of a... Uh, big middle class in Randolph, and I believe Stoughton. In Randolph, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. and that was sort of interesting. Um, and you know how that happens here? Because because they could not afford rents in Greater Boston, the rents and, and homes, let me just say that the homes, um, Stoughton and Randolph became really wastelands. That, that It's sort of like a, a migration. You know, it's sort of like go there. And then after what happens is, is that, well, why not go there? Because you can find, now this may sound crazy, but you can find your hair products. You know what I mean? You you can it 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 won't be difficult to set up not only a church but a community center, a newspaper because now you'll know the circulation here. So what happens is is that then you will begin to get that mix. It's not only of 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 not only black middle class but of working class folks here and stuff. And what happens is is like always, once we build build those communities up or they become you know desirable, then then again you you're pushed out. Well, we can continue this next week because the series is going to go on when That's you and right. I are, bat, are both back together again, Irene. Thanks. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Great to see you. Likewise. And congratulations again on your honor. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And yeah. let's keep our prayers for the, yes. for, for for the Emma, price. Yeah, That's we right. hope everything works out well for him. Absolutely. Reverend Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail. Uh, speaking of Emmett Price, hopefully things uh, do improve for his uh, situation. This Wednesday night at 7, you can catch him at the Christmas Jazz Vespers featuring the Emmett Price Trio. That's 7 o'clock, free and open to the public at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. To learn more, go to gordonconwell.edu slash christmasvespers2017. Up next, it's time for A Village Voice with poet Richard Blanco. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. It is time for another edition of Village Voice, our recurring conversation about poetry and how it can help us to make sense of the news of the day. Leading the way is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history, Richard Blanco. He's a professor at Florida International University teaching poetry. His latest book is the Fine Press Book Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jacob Helser. Uh, Hessler, excuse me. Uh, Richard Blanco, it's great to have you here. Jared Bowen is in today for uh, Jim Browdy. Richard, hi. How are hi, you? Great, great, great to be back. <laughs> well, I, I uh, tell us about your theme. What, what we're, uh, what we're doing this week. Well, um, it so happens in in, uh, in my class at FIU, we're doing eco poetry and eco poetics and nature poetry, and thinking about um, thinking about what's going in in going on in the news with uh, with all the uh, the land uh, the the monuments uh, sort of being taken back, um, and thinking about Elizabeth Bishop, um, <clears throat> who's a great sort of nature poet. So uh, yeah, I thought there was a connection there, and, and poetry had something to offer us in that context. Yeah, because this is this is nothing new. Presidents going back as as far as back as Teddy Roosevelt, of course, were, were the first people. Well before Elizabeth Bishop started writing about this, uh, recognizing the value of national monuments and land as it relates to to, to culture. Really, at the end of the day. Yes, um, and uh, and also where I'm, I mean, I'm teaching at Florida International, but of course uh, I live in Bethel, Maine, and, and and so that's the there's an issue there too with one of the monuments. So so it's kind of hitting a little close to home as well. Well, you know, Richard, when I was looking um, in anticipation of your coming, the map of Bears Ears, uh, where it started and where it has ended after Trump's changes, it's it, it's tiny. I mean, it's just tiny. Yeah, I forget the exact percentage, but it, it's a dramatic. I think it's 85 percent. Yeah. But the ma- when you look at the map of where it was compared to what it is now, it's yeah. almost gone. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really dramatic, and uh, I think someone, uh, a group of uh, uh, Native American tribes, have filed suit already, and also there is uh, there's suspicion that it has to do a lot with uh, you know the energy sector and trying to uh, think there's some kind of uranium um, manufacturer or mine or something like right next to it. So so that's what I find also interesting that you know the the argument is kind of cloaked in this this idea of just let people you know let Utah decide what they want to do, and that's perfectly fine. As that's a good idea. Yeah, but um, but there's more of it than meets the eye, of course. Right, so. You ready to do the poem? Sure, sure. Okay. And it's a it's kind of a tangent to this. I mean, it's obviously not about uh, not about bears ears or anything like that. But but uh, Bishop's uh, work sort of teaches us or, or is, uh, evokes for us a sense of reverence and awe in nature that I think is parallel to what how we should be treating uh, these monuments. The fish. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of water, with my hook fast in the corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely. Here and there, his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper. Shapes like full-blown roses, stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice, and underneath two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills, fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly, 
I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed, the irises backed and tacked with tarnished tinfoil seen through the lenses of old scratched incense glass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, hung five old pieces of fish line, or four and a wire leader with a swivel still attached, with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth, a green line frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines and a fine black thread still crimped from the strain and snap when it broke and he got away. Like metals with their ribbons frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat. From the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine, to the baler, rusted orange, the sun-cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels, everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And I let the fish go. You know, I gotta say, Richard, you bring unbelievable poems every every single week. Go, the thing that you point out, and um, we should just note for people that at the beginning of the poem, Elizabeth Bishop talks about how this tremendous fish did not fight, and that to me was just like it's almost like he'd been caught so many times, and he'd been hoisted out of the water by a hook in his mouth that he'd kind of almost expected this in his life. Yeah, and that's what you see as you read on later in the poem. You say this is this is would be the sixth time, and he's finally sort of given up. But he's battered, you know. He's he's a veteran. He's survived five ba- five battles against against man, so to speak, against against the Fisher person, right? And so uh, that's why he hadn't fought. Um, and uh, and that's part of part of what makes this poem so interesting. It's not your you know, it's not your expected fishing poem, especially the very end, which is just like <laughs> sort of hits you out of nowhere. And there's there's many you know many possible interpretations or nuances as to why she let the fish go. But um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, so what the parallel I see here is that, you know, the fish is sort of, the fish is, of course, literal, but also figurative, right? It sort of stands in for, for our engagement and our relationship with the natural world. And if we think about um, about beers, uh, bear's ears, you know, the idea that, that you know, this this thing has been a long, you know, this 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 place has been a long, here forever, right? And and uh, and we're trying to own it. We're trying to sort of catch it. We're trying to control it. We're trying to, to um, you know, analogous to the fish. You know, trying to trying to trying to take take over it, right? And and I think part of what Elizabeth Bishop realizes is that you know this fish does not belong to her, right? That 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 it's earned its place in this world, and and um, and uh, it's part of the natural world that she belongs to as well. Place often has a huge place in, in any writer's uh, missives and reflections and poetry. I know in your own writing it, it has certainly come through, and you mentioned how you're considering what's happening in Maine as well because it touches home, it touches what you know. 
How much did Elizabeth Bishop travel, and, and do we have a sense of, of what her sense of place was? Elizabeth Bishop um, uh, uh, f- um, has traveled quite a bit, and, and in a way she was effectively orphaned when she was, uh, I think, about four years old. Her father had died, and her mother was in an institution the rest of her life. And so, ironically, I, I as child of exiles and as an immigrant, um, have always seen myself reflected in, in uh, or in the mirror of Bishop's poem because I see her always always trying to find place and always meticulously describing place and the natural world as a way to almost uh, ingest it into her psyche, right, to connect with place in a way that's so so intense, the, the meticulous detailing and the and the, it's, it's like you're there with her in every single moment. She doesn't forget to, you know, describe any little detail that, that, that uh, comes into play. So, um, yeah, she's lived in Key West. She lives in Brazil for 30 years. Uh, she lived in uh, North Haven uh, in Maine as well, so there's a connection there for me um, and several other places. And I think she was always looking for home in a way and always respected place and the natural world as 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 in that context as a potential home as a place of a connection and a belonging right well richard we can't miss the dreaded local angle here since we are boston public radio she taught it at harvard for a while in the early 1970s so i i would imagine she must have lived at some point near here and i read uh, that where her maternal grand, her paternal grandparents rather that took her in after, as you said, uh, her father died and her mother was mentally ill. They were uh, wealthy residents of Massachusetts and sent her to the very elite, as they describe it, Walnut Hill School uh, for girls before she went on to Vassar. So she had some roots, not roots, I guess, but she certainly passed some time here. So she oh. was a big deal. Yes, certainly. Um, That was after she returned from Brazil. And also, she uh, believes she was uh, born in Worcester and is buried in Worcester, which I've been made... Uh, I've been meaning to make a pilgrimage, actually. Um, So she's she's there with us still. (laughs) And and so when you you, um, look at a poem like this... um, how do you move from that to like this bigger this bigger thing? I mean, when you're thinking about these things, how does your mind work about this kind of stuff, Richard? Well, you know, I was I was of course uh, sorting through several poems, and I, I like poems that 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 uh, that are tangential. That they, there's a lot of breathing space in there. Because one of the ways we learn from poetry, or generally in life, is by comparison. You know, by by making these connections. And so there were a lot of poems that yes, they were more on the nose about uh, about um, eco poetics or whatnot. But I love that I love how Bishop's poem sort of addresses these issues in a way that's almost in between the lines and sort of offers up a different. A, a conversation that grows larger than both the poem and and than the poem and into what's happening at Bear's ears, um, and for me uh, again it's it's this idea you know the fish for me uh, you know again sort of symbolizes nature whatever whether that's a fish whether that's uh, the oceans whether that's uh, whether that's land conservation but the idea of reverence uh, that she brings up in in this poem and and that last line which is like which is sort of a debated or those last three lines which is debated where everything sort of turns into rainbow 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 which of course then echoes you know the biblical story of Noah and the promise of you know the promise of peace on earth and et cetera et cetera but the idea that she lets the fish go and that and that you know she lets the fish go I think in part because she there's a there's a certain reverence or realization uh, of the reverence and the power of nature, uh, and realizing yeah. you can't you can't own it. But there's also a personal thing here, which is a little subtle, um, which is 
which is that the speaker, let's not say bishop, but the speaker in a way, uh, I think also reflects on, on how we ourselves go through so many trials and tribulations in our lives, right? So, so we're also veterans of things that have happened to us. And if you look at Elizabeth Bishop's history, of course, she's, she's had great losses in her life, right? Including, you know, her own parents from the very beginning. And so there's also this other, this other layer of identity saying, you know, this, this respect toward this thing that has survived and she's not going to be the one uh, to, to, to be its final end, right? I, and so there's that layer too. But yeah, I kind of always look for things that um that that uh that open up a conversation that isn't too on the nose, but then again by learning by contrast and we see you know, by analogy um what Elizabeth Bishop's uh words sort of have to say to uh to a bear's ears and that is and that is I mean that that you know that we don't own any of this, right? And and that this idea of of that we're that we're you know that this land belongs to X, Y, or Z, and in fact, it should be what it is. We should let that fish go, in a way, is what, how, I, how I sort of made that connection. I was really struck by, as you were reading, and how in relatively few lines, we con- or at least I conjured this whole life story of the fish and, yes. and, and everything it, come, it brings to bear without, and I always I slur on this word, anthropomorphizing the fish. Yeah. Oh, very good. <laughs> I did, did it, it. Right. for yeah. the first time ever. It's a good thing. <laughs> I can even say that. <laughs> but but yeah, how she's able to do that in just the way she describes and describes it and interprets it. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. My favorite part in that sense is when she compares the the five lines hanging from his mm. mouth, like a five. What's the line exactly? Of a five haired beard of wisdom, right? Like that's yeah. so Bishop. Like, and so you know, it's like, and and it and it begins where she's like, kind of, oh, there's this homely fish, and it's kind of, and as she thinks deeper and deeper, the metaphors and and the and the the descriptions change, the figurative language changes to this. To this idea of you know really raising raising his beauty uh, his sort of his sort of uh, a kind of respect for him um, and so uh, or her um, <laughs> that's right we do yeah. not know <laughs> <laughs> we do not know but yeah uh, th- that's uh, that's amazing how she does that um, she has another great poem called the moose which is another favorite of mine which uh, does take place uh, uh, I believe yeah somewhere in northern New England um, and it's about uh, her riding on a bus and coming across a moose and you're just like what? Like I read that poem while I was still li- living in, uh, while I was still growing up in Florida before I moved to Maine, and it was my first introduction to a moose, and it was just like <laughs> this, this amazing sort of. I've never been able to see a moose the same way again. Um, and it's because, again, well, that's an, uh, whatever, what is it that you said, Jared? What was that word? Anthropomorphic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Try to trick me into doing it again. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't say it. Um, I learned, uh, and, and I think that that's, again, how this poem relates to nature, right? When you, when you do that to the natural world, suddenly the natural world doesn't become this, 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 um, this objective thing, but it becomes alive, right? And, and that's part of the tactic of the poem to make nature come alive and 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 uh connect with us you know in a way that's that's very real and tangible and 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 ingrained in our relate or, or I should say an inextricable relationship between the natural world and our lives which we cannot we kind of often can ignore very easily or sometimes we just look at nature and like oh that's pretty or whatnot but we're sort of you know the 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 tourist the we're still sort of in that tourist mode like oh yeah that's nice that's nice look at the grand canyon okay let's go you know <laughs> so what, what poems do is like really take the time to really you know make those things fully alive and present in our lives in ways that in ways that poetry can do it 
Well, I couldn't help thinking when I was reading this about the stories we've had over the weekend about these uh, North Atlantic right whales that are that are dying and are having these terrible stresses because they're caught in fishing lines. And um, there's been some big study of, I don't know how they measure the stress levels of whales, but apparently this is a terrible thing. You couldn't help but think about the stress of this fish, you know, obviously much smaller, but still with five or six hooks in its jaw, you know, how we, you know, we're big-time hunters and torturers of animals. Yeah, so so that's another perfect uh, sort of another analogy, right? That um, uh, the fact how she how she uh, how she framed this poem was that that he had fought, and uh, you know it's that constant stressing, and he'd finally given up. In a way, what you're saying is the whales are finally giving up. Yeah. You know? um, um, and there's only so much, uh, you know. And I think that that was the recognition also uh, in the poem. It's like you know that it's it's me, me the fisher person, but me also you know meaning us. Um, uh, is in in constant sort of uh, battle with with nature in a way that's not really that's not really the way we should ideally live with nature, right? Makes you feel guilty. Of course, I haven't had any fish for I don't like fish, okay. <laughs> but, but I do eat a lot of chicken and other things. But you know, you do it. May, it does make you feel guilty every time you think of one of these poor fish. That's why I hated fish when I was a kid. I loved being out there with the line in the water. But you know how it is, and you catch the fish, and the fish is flopping around oh, and yeah. flipping around on the dock, and then you have to take the hook out, and it's bleeding, and oh, And now you God. have to watch the people, if, 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 if no one around you is doing it, you're watching people at the next dock doing yeah. it, and, and then they, right. they keep them longer now to take the pictures with them, and oh, it's just like, oh, and the gills, put it back, put the it back. Fish, the fish is frantically trying to get, you know, trying to get, it's getting oxygen through its gills, which isn't helping it much, but you see the gills going in and out. But anyway, yeah, I wanted it. to ask you, Richard, are there... Are there other eco-poets that our listeners should be aware of that you think are doing good work? Well, um, uh, W.S. Merwin, um, speaking of whales, um, I almost um, I almost picked a poem by him. Um, and uh, he was one of the sort of the, before it was even called that, um, he was one of, one of the poets that sort of started raising awareness or thinking about, you know, thinking about what does eco-poetry mean or what are eco-poetics. Um, so he's definitely one, and he lives. Uh, we shared a poem in the past, a village yes, we voice did. of his, yes. um, which wasn't. But even in there, there was there is a there is an element of of of, uh, of of ecology in there, right? So he's a he's one of the sort of founding uh, poets of, of that kind of poetry, and it's interesting how there's different layers of sort of because uh, eco poetics or eco poetry is kind of a relatively new thing in the sense that that it's still sort of. A, a little blurry in terms of definition. There's kind of there's nature poetry, then there's environmental poetry, and then there's eco poetry, and sort of that's that's sort of the 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 spectrum. And the eco poetry really, what it, one of the things it it does, it's that it's not. Here's another word for you, Jerry. It's not athro. <laughs> Anthropocentric. <laughs> well done. <laughs> which, which which means that it's not centered about humans' experience in nature, but it's really about immersing yourself in nature. Um, so it's not using nature in in a way that's just a, like like you take like Frost's for example, Ross Frost's um, 
the the two roads poem, um, <laughs> um, which is uh, you know two words two two roads diverge in a wood, and it takes place in nature, and it's about nature and stuff. But it's really just completely using nature, and not that it's a it's a beautiful poem, uh, but it it wouldn't quite be considered an eco poem, even though it brings nature no. into play, nature as a, as a symbol of some kind. But it's really about what does it mean to me in human life, right? So ecopoetics is really a fascinating. Um, really a fascinating sort of uh, that's obviously grown a lot in in the last few years, uh, though it's always been around in some ways, but it's starting to define itself a little bit more. And so that's one of the things. And it also examines the complexity. So it's not like, it's not just a call to arms, you know, it's not just waving a flag. It's it's more about really diving into the complexities. And I think Bishop's poem does that too. You know, it's more, it's it's not just sort of stating the obvious, but really looking at, you know, what are the intricacies or rela- relationship to um to nature. And when you're thinking about, for example, when you were saying, Marjorie, about, you know, when you're actually witnessing, you know, killing a fish. I know. I, in, it's terrible. In Cuba, <laughs> in Cuba, in Cuba, I've had to I've had to slaughter a, a pig with my cousins. And, uh. and I and ironically, though, it teaches you a different kind of reverence, even though we're sort of shocked. But that shock sort of we're not just buying packaged meat in some, you know, with a neat little right. barcode and, you know. And not seeing and then calling things, you know, by these abstracted names like beef or poultry, you know. And so in a way it teaches you that kind of that kind of response, that kind of visceral response teaches us a different kind of respect. Um, for, How'd you slaughter for it? How'd you slaughter it? How'd you kill it? Um, knife. Bit to the neck? <laughs> well, no, uh, to the heart. Um, oh, well, that was fast. I should say, I should say, I have a lot. I had a lot of help. It was more symbolic than anything because they made me do it. Okay, um, but it was weird, and 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 then you know we ate we ate from from the pig from and um and it was a different kind of feeling. And you also realize this pig will feed you know twenty families for the no, next few months. It's you know, true. and so and so it's but no, but it's important. I think everybody should have that experience in some way because it teaches it examines again a. a more complex relationship with nature and um and you know it's not just sort of the obvious um things that poem you know then i think that's what poems do best is sort of look at all the nuances but i remember that i'll never forget that day and and this fish poem in a way sort of reminds me of the same thing i'm having a visceral reaction to especially when she like she mentions the gills and the and the entrails and all stuff but i think that's part exactly what bishop is bringing into play it's like look at this thing that you're killing you know it's not just something you buy in the store, and and the reverence that comes also from that from 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 that that experience, right? Well, and looking is important to tie it back, and this is why I am on the side of Patagonia. I have to say because Me it's, too. it's one thing to talk about Utah. I have had the fortune of being there, and I've been to a, a few of the national parks, or at least two of the national parks there. It is staggering. It's stunning. There, there's there's poetry in picture in Utah. You you see the Native American culture literally written out on on cave walls and on stone. And so, uh, Richard, everything yep, you just yep. spoke about, you feel it when you're there. I, I I'll never forget the the, the park ranger tour i mean normally you think you're just going to say look at this rock look at that it was one of the most spiritual experiences of my life that i just stumbled into by 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 uh, the national park service yeah yeah Which, oh speaking speaking of that i did want to mention the academy of american poets uh did a whole series uh they commissioned uh, poets to write poems about all the uh the national parks uh so if you google it online so it, to answer your question to uh marjorie about places to look for these kinds of poems great it has pictures and uh and they picked obviously poets that like you like you said jared that had been there and lived in that state 
and it's really very powerful and wonderful um, what what they what they pull and how they you know how they how they make those parts come alive for us uh, in poetry. Richard, thank you as always. I I, um, I cannot tell you how much I enjoy uh, taking the time to read these poems. They're awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad to do it, and I'm 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 enjoying them. I'm enjoying you, and, good, and, and good. enjoying this very much. It feels like I'm, like uh, you know, putting poetry out there in the world and making it sort of tangible to our lives is so important to me. Um, and so I, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thanks. And I'm glad to dip into it for today, <laughs> Richard. Thank you, Jared. <laughs> All right, Richard Blanco joins us twice a month for Village Voice. He's the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history, a professor at Florida International University. And his latest project is the fine press book, Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. Up next, TV expert Bob Thompson joins us for his best and worst TV moments of the week. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. When President Trump was honoring the Navajo Code Talkers and he called Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, the media were not overreacting when they criticized him for using a racial slur, slur that is. But did they overreact last week when Trump slurred his words? As disturbing as it was today to watch Donald Trump add fuel to the Middle East conflict, it was even more disturbing to watch the conflict between Donald Trump's teeth and his tongue. Let us rethink old assumptions and open our hearts and minds to defeat radicalism that threatens the hopes and dreams. God bless the United States. Thank you very much. President Trump caused a bit of controversy and perhaps concern yesterday as he appears to have had trouble making it through the entirety of his Jerusalem speech. The White House says he, his mouth was dry, but the speech sparked a hashtag called Dentadonal. Now, a lot of dentists are implying that it might have been a denture issue. Yes. Or sometimes, you know, if you have Invisalign, which sometimes it, can, it sounds different, but not quite like this. Okay. Joining us on the line for his take on this and other TV news is Bob Thompson. Bob is a professor and founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Hello, Bob Thompson. How you do? How are you doing? <laughs> well, I suspect this could be your worst, Bob Thompson. Am I correct? Well, it is. And, you know, it's, uh, there's so many things about this. I mean, I guess if it's, if it's true that people actually think that the, that speech is indication that the president has had a stroke or is incapable of uh, uh, operating, then I guess that would be big news. But I've seen it a bunch of times, and uh, uh, it certainly doesn't sound like that. And, okay, Trevor Noah is a comedian. I suppose you make fun of that. And I have to say that bit he did was really quite hysterical. But, you know, I think back at the – let's assume for a second, as Trevor Noah seems to think, that this is an issue with dentures. 
Donald Trump is 71 years old. Exactly. Maybe he wears dentures. Right. Dentures do that kind of thing. We we really got upset when Donald Trump made fun of people for various physical uh, things. Remember the New York Times reporter, for example. Yep. Yet the imitations that people were doing of him reminded me an awful lot of that. There's so many things that we can take to task the president of the United States for. And if he happens to have slipping dentures, I'm not sure that that's one we should be uh, uh, taking him to task for. Well, I'm not in a position to criticize anybody because I fall over my words all the time here on the radio. So I'm not going to... um criticize the president on this one. Well, there's no question. There's hypocrisy here. But as I think a friend of mine pointed out not too long ago, there's not a lot of traffic on the high road. So <laughs> doesn't, it's not a surprise that we see this kind of outpouring after this. Yeah. But the, the, but the thing that I thought was, um, was most interesting was uh, just cons- people thinking again that he's got this serious medical condition or a drinking problem, which is ridiculous, because he said over and over again that he is, uh, I don't think, I don't know if he's had a drink when he was young, but he certainly hasn't had a drink for years because he lost a brother to alcoholism and that had a big impact on him. But I want to know why nobody's investigating the sniffing, the... Yeah, well, there has. I mean, there are all these other things about. Uh, and of course, he says he doesn't drink. We we don't uh, uh, we don't know. But I don't. No, think we don't. Any That's true. Of, uh, uh, I don't think there's any indication of that. And then there is, you know, all these other things about uh, mental competency. That's and then those are all things that I think people should be investigating and looking into. I'm not sure the end of that speech with that slurring the word United States and a few things before that, uh, however, uh, was it's an example of we've got all this stuff on tape and we've got 24 hours to talk about it. Yeah. Okay, Bob Thompson, as long as we did the worst, then what's the best? I'm once again giving the best to Turner Classic Movies Channel. I've said many times that I think it does what it sets out to do better than any other cable does when it sets out to do what it uh, uh, tries to do. And that is that uh, it's it's really more like a museum than a, car- a cable channel. And it does exhibits, and it archives, and it does uh, docent work as it introduces things. Anyway, we're in December, and they're doing all of these uh, uh, Christmas movies. And they did a... Uh, 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 on the Fifth, I think it was. They did um, uh, two episode or two movie versions of Christmas Carol. The very first sound version from 1935, and then uh, what's kind of considered the definitive version of it from uh, 1951. And just to show how important that stick and story has been to movies, there have been over 50 adaptations of it, countless television uh, uh, episodes based on it. Uh, Scrooge, in one form or another, has been uh, uh, portrayed by Mickey Mouse, Mr. Magoo, The Muppets, uh, Jim Carrey, uh, Vanessa Williams, George <laughs> C. Scott, oh my Buddy Hackett, for heaven's sakes, um, uh, uh, Bugs Bunny, the Looney Tunes. I mean, and now there's this movie, The Man Who Invented Christmas, that just got re- released in uh, uh, on November 22nd. So between Scrooge and Santa Claus, so much of the narrative way in which we perceive this holiday uh, goes back to those two. And once again, I think Turner Classic Movies did another great job in this kind of museum curating that they do so well. Well, as you just mentioned, there are a lot of... By the way, Christopher Plummer is the Scrooge and that the man who invented Christmas. That's that's probably better casting than Buddy Hackett as Ebenezer <laughs> Scrooge. But you, Scrooge, you just mentioned the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol, which many consider to be the, the most definitive one. Here's a clip from that. 
and Scrooge's name was good on the London Exchange for anything he chose to put his hand to. Ah, Mr. Scrooge. Your servant, sir. Are you off home to keep Christmas? I am not in the habit of keeping Christmas, sir. Then why are you leaving so early? Because, sir, Christmas is a habit of keeping men from doing business. Can't it's the nature of things that ants toil and grasshoppers sing and play, Mr. Scrooge? An ant is what it is and a grasshopper is what it is and Christmas, sir, is a humbug. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> It's so nice to slip back into, into that, isn't it? Even I just saw a stage, a stage production right here at Central Square Theater uh, over the weekend. And it's just, it, it's comfort because you know the language, you know the story. It's nice to slip back into it. It, it is. It's, in one way, it's, it's like the Mona Lisa or the Hallelujah Chorus. It's become so familiar that it's hard to even be able to hear it uh, uh, anymore. Uh, and also, it was, it was kind of trying to push for... People forget that uh, businesses were open on Christmas uh, uh, in Dickens' time. Uh, Congress continued to meet on Christmas Day well into the 20th century in, in, uh, uh, in this country. Uh, so in many ways, I'm not sure I would go with that movie and say Dick, uh, Dickens invented Christmas, but he certainly did a lot to establish how it would be thought of uh, by making this ye old Christmas seem like it was happening contemporarily, which it wasn't. We're talking to Bob Thompson, our TV expert. So better news on the House of Cards front. I think a lot of people who have been watching that show were a little bit concerned that it was suddenly that everything was left hanging, especially where we saw Robin Wright uh, ascend to the presidency and and really became a force in that show over the tenure. And then suddenly there was this question about whether Kevin Spacey being removed from it would mean the end of the show again when Robin Wright had such prominence. What's happening there? Okay, well, now it's official. It's coming back. It was originally scheduled for a 13-episode sixth and final season. Then all the Kevin Spacey stuff uh, uh, broke. Uh, It looked like the whole thing might be scrapped, but apparently Netflix was scrambling right from the beginning. So now what's happened is what they've already filmed for the sixth season, they're getting rid of. They were working on two uh, episodes. Uh, Even the scripts for the first uh, that they had prepared ahead of time are going away. And now it's going to be eight full episodes. And since it's eight instead of 13, even though they're behind, they should be able to uh, uh, to manage that. Um, and I think there is a certain satisfaction in the fact that uh, uh, this show gets to be rescued uh, for its final season with a woman in charge. To have, to have let that end uh, just when she became president, especially given the circumstances of it ending early if it had, uh, would have been symbolically really unsatisfying. But how do they work this out? I mean, you know what I mean? Where does the Spacey character, what do they do? Well, I don't know what they're going to do. They could, uh, there's any number of uh, ways in which uh, uh, television has gotten rid of characters that suddenly aren't uh, uh, available. Killing them off is a uh, is a yeah. favorite uh, trick in their uh, uh, up their sleeve. Um, but that's why they've had to get rid of the scripts that they had had written ahead of time. Because of course, Frank Underwood was still in the picture at that point. So, uh, but given how that ended. I don't think it's going to be that difficult. You just do a sleight of hand and get rid of him one way or the other, either 
send him out of town or kill him off or uh, uh, whatever. Um, but then you've got to rewrite the whole thing going on with uh, uh, her as president and him not in the picture, which is why it took some significant retooling. I'm a little surprised that they would be so definitive as to say that this is the last season. I know that they had said that anyway, even before the scandal broke, because this would seem to open up a whole lot of opportunity. And ironically, I had just watched the final episode of the most recent season the night before the scandal around Kevin Spacey broke. But but if you just focus on, on Robin Wright's character, Claire Underwood, it seems to me that you could take this in a whole other direction, especially in light of what's happening in the news right now. Well, by them, and I think you're right, and uh, by them saying, as they had said before the Spacey thing, that this is the sixth and final season, that doesn't mean that a a pact is sealed in heaven, that it has to be. Uh, If this turns out to be an extraordinarily rich season, if everybody loves the uh, Claire Underwood uh, administration, there's nothing to say they couldn't say, we changed our mind, we're going to do another season, or we're going to change the title, and it's going to be called uh, uh, Claire's House of Cards. Uh, I mean, they're... um, I think they'll wait and see what uh, uh, what happens. But officially, this is the end, but it wouldn't have to be. I have to say, I like the fact that television shows now end when they're finished. The Wire went five seasons, and it ended. Breaking Bad went five seasons, uh, and it ended. In the old days, the idea was that you wanted to keep putting more and more episodes in the can, because the more you had, the more you could sell them for in reruns. And consequently, really wonderful series, by the time they were over, had become parodies of themselves. Um, it would be like if uh, I've used this example with you guys before. If uh, you listened to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and said, wow, that was really good. Can you give us seven more movements, please? <laughs> We're talking to Bob Thompson, our TV guy. Okay, um, maybe you can convince me why I should watch this next one. I know it's gotten a lot of attention, but I, I, it just doesn't seem to hold together for me. The idea of this ex-cop turn hitman, his name is Nick, played by Christopher Maloney, and he's got this weird little, uh, it's not a stuffed animal, I, I guess it's a... <laughs> Fantasy horse or something? I mean, what, what, this is a new TV show, uh, uh, sci-fi. Okay. What's the deal? More than a horse. Yeah. You're right. It's more than a horse. It's a unicorn. It's a horse <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a horn in the center of his head. Okay, unicorn. Um, and when a horse has a, hor- a horn in the center of its head, it's a lot more than a horse. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm not convincing you to watch this because it's one weird show. And we've had weird uh, shows before, but... Everything you say, it's being compared to uh, like a Quentin Tarantino film. It's got elements of a clockwork orange. It is this violent, sexual, dark, uh, urban uh, sort of thing with this guy who's gone drugs and drinking. He dies twice in the first uh, act of the, uh, of the whole thing. But then it's all taking place during Christmas time. There's this uh, really adorable uh, uh, young girl who gets kidnapped by this guy that looks like uh, if, if Santa Claus mated with a werewolf. And she has this happy unicorn friend called Happy and sends it to this guy to uh, uh, help find her and get her, um, get her saved. On paper, it sounds like the stupidest thing you could possibly uh, uh, ever imagine, this dark crime show with this very cute uh, uh, flying unicorn. But somehow, and don't watch this with the kids, 
somehow it all holds together, and uh, critics are saying pretty good. It's getting more attention uh, for the Sci-Fi Network than anything since Sharknado. And Sharknado, they laugh at this. They're actually taking kind of seriously. It makes me wonder, though. It's I, I know it takes films years to develop television, maybe a little less so. But given its dark nature, given how outlandish it was, and there seems to be a lot of aggression in this show, are we now starting to see what's going to come to the fore as people respond to the environment where we're all talking about how everybody's bitter, depressed, running around, just completely anxious? Is this the first manifestation of this on television, do you think? I think it's the uh, the middle manifestation of it. We started getting characters like uh, on The Shield and on House. And then when you think even over the past almost 20 years, uh, some of the most critically acclaimed programs that we've got out there are about really bad people, really, really dark uh, uh, subject matter. I mean, for all of their brilliance, uh, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, Mad Men, The Wire are very cynical programs in many ways. So I think this is just a uh, continuation of uh, something uh, we've already seen. However, this one, and only one episode is played. It plays on Wednesdays, I think. Um, This has got this kind of sentimental redeeming feature of this uh, uh, unicorn that's that's trying to save a little girl. You didn't get stories like that on The Sopranos. (laughs) No, No, we did not. And everybody needs a little unicorn in their life, (laughs) even if they think it's a horse. It's true. Do we know what color (laughs) this is? Right. Very good. Yes. Is the the unicorn horse, whatever it is, do do you know what color it is? Blue. Blue. Okay. Please Thank you very much. Blue on my TV set. Okay. So, Bob Thompson, um, we're going to play a little clip from this. Oh, get... are you trying to make red and blue, uh, red state, blue state? I hadn't thought of that. I had, well, I hadn't thought of it either. I was just thinking, I was wondering, I mean, it could have been a pink unicorn, could have been bright green. I mean, I don't know. I just wonder what color it was. So It's um, a horse of a different color. A horse. Marjorie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right. Thank you. Oh, man. Thank you, Jared. Um, so, everybody knows uh, Billy Bush uh, was on the bus with the famous Access Hollywood tape when uh, Donald Trump was talking about grabbing women. Um, he it got, it reemerged last week. He wrote a piece, I think it was last week, maybe been the week before now, but in any case, he recently wrote this op-ed in the New York Times uh, when Trump said, was questioning whether that was actually, you know, he was actually there, that someone had doctored the tape. Billy Bush wrote a piece saying that, no, uh, he was there, and Donald Trump said those words. So anyway, he's on Stephen Colbert talking about uh, this claim. Here's a little clip. Look, he, last week, for some reason, came out with, that's not my voice on the tape. Like I said, you can't say that. That is your voice. I was there. You were there. That's your voice on the tape. And what that does, though, is multiple... I told you about my own personal problem with it. But then you've got 20 women at the time. I don't know what the exact number is because there's more, but 20 women who used their names. We've got powerful people being held accountable now, and sometimes there's anonymous sources. All of these women came out with their names and told their detailed accounts. So when he said this, it infuriated me on the personal front. So what I'm wondering, Bob Thompson, uh, Billy Bush wrote a really good piece, I thought. Uh, He didn't grab anybody. He, he He didn't up, you know, upbraid the president, who was then not anywhere near being the president when he said it. That was obviously wrong. But is he done, or can he uh, come back in some form? Probably not on the Today Show, since they've had a lot of their pro- problems on the Today Show. But can he come back? Well, I think Billy Bush, as you just point out, is a different case from Matt Lauer or Kevin Spacey or Bill Cosby. Uh, in that, as you pointed out, he 
was laughing and uh, uh, going along with all of these comments, but in fact, nobody has accused him of actually doing uh, any of this stuff. Now, that isn't to, uh, and one of the reasons why the audience was so uncomfortable when he was on uh, Colbert is that that laughing and being part of it, uh, one could perceive as being part of the very culture we keep, keep talking about that enables all this. So it's not like that isn't uh, um, insignificant. But I think Billy Bush, under these circumstances, probably could uh, uh, be hired someplace again, probably could resurrect his, uh, uh, his career. And he's trying very hard to do that. I'm not sure the Colbert experience was the greatest step in that uh, uh, direction. For one thing, uh, it was way too jokey. He gets introduced and he comes out all smiley and all the rest of it. He makes a joke about furniture shopping. I mean, in some ways, the attitude about the thing was not the same as the attitude on the bus, but again, it was still that kind of hail fellow, laughy kind of thing. And Colbert doesn't help that, because Colbert very much continues to weave in uh, jokes, unlike what John Oliver would do with Dustin Hoffman uh, 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 at a different point. So uh, I'm not sure how helpful that was for Billy Bush, but he clearly wants to be on television again. And I think it's probably more possible than a lot of these other cases we've been talking about over the past several weeks. Well, it's interesting to see that personality that you just described still being somewhat jokey uh, when this was clearly he was going on as maybe the beginnings of a, a rehab tour for his image. But I was also struck by the New York Times piece in which he talked about the culture at NBC, and he was encouraged to be this personality. He was encouraged to get cozy with people, to bring out other people's personalities, like the the raw Trump that we heard from that tape. And how do you reconcile those two, who who he was you know, presumably in real life on Colbert versus the person he says he was instructed to be? Right. And he talked about that a little on Colbert and in the thing he wrote as well, which there, there was a sense that when, when that bus trip happened, Trump, of course, was on The Apprentice. He was the big star at, uh, uh, at NBC. In many ways, Billy Bush was on that bus to, uh, to keep the star uh, happy. That's what he was there for. He was kind of his, uh, uh, his escort. And as we found out in many, many other occasions uh, 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 since then, one of the ways to keep the talent happy in the, if, if Donald Trump is the talent is to laugh at their jokes, to say how great they are, to do all of this kind of uh, uh, ego stroking. So it, it is true. I mean, kind of like a shock jock that is supposed to do things that will almost get them fired, but not quite. Uh, Billy Bush was essentially doing his job. It's just that, as it turned out, that job was not a, uh, a very good one. We're talking with Bob Thompson, our uh, TV man. Well, speaking of Dustin Hoffman, uh, whom you just spoke about, um, he's had at least one allegation. Now we learned over the weekend there was another worse allegation against him, although it has not uh, been vetted very thoroughly as far as I know. But he's at this uh, Tribeca event with uh, John Oliver, and John Oliver is questioning Dustin Hoffman about the sexual harassment allegations that are made against him. We'll play this clip first to give people an idea what we're talking about and then get your uh, take on this, Bob. Here it is, Dustin Hoffman. I said a stupid thing, you know, but I said it in the midst of the crew, and they said they're stupid things, but they were sexual in, in terms of the humor of it. But... That's 19, that's 40 years ago. Oh, I, gotta, I don't love that response either. What, what response do you want? <laughs> okay, what, was you, what would you have It's done? not for me 
to say it just it feels like dismissals or recontextualizing it is not actually addressing it doesn't feel self-reflective in the way that it seems the incident demands. The, the one thing I, I was reading, I, I, there is no, I get no pleasure from having this conversation, but you and I are not the victims here. I, I should have uh, said what exactly he's accused of before he played that clip, Bob. Just let me say that there's a young, uh, well, she's not young now, but Anna Graham Hunter said when she was 17, um, when she was a young woman, that he made multiple inappropriate comments and unwanted sexual advances toward her. That was the one that Oliver was asking him about. Over the weekend, we learned of another uh, uh, woman, Catherine Rossiter, who said when she was also a young woman, this is really awful, if this is true, that he they were doing a, uh, a stage production together and he pulled her slip up over her head, um, exposing her body to the crew. Um, other people on the crew have been questioned about that. They said they don't remember it. So this one is kind of in flux. But in any case, what do you make of this uh, John Oliver-Dustin Hoffman confrontation? Well, a lot of people thought it uh, was the wrong place. It was this Tribeca film uh, uh, screening celebrating the anniversary of the movie Wag the Dog. And uh, uh, Oliver, uh, uh, instead of just asking questions about the movie, starts asking questions about this. And the audience seemed divided. They stood up and applauded at some of the things that John Oliver did. At the same time, you could hear in the background one person saying, uh, uh, move on. It did seem out of place. It, uh, is John Oliver sanctimonious? Yes, he is. But I actually think this was a good thing. The idea that for so long we have these screenings, these big shots get up, we kowtow to them, we ask them uh, uh, questions about their career and all the rest of it, um, and, you know, it, it continues to sort of uh, 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 sanctify them and make them the powerful people that they, uh, that they are. The fact that John Oliver is up there as the moderator of this and this story is floating about about Dustin Hoffman I don't know. I think it was perfectly appropriate to do. Uh, he did none of the Stephen Colbert jokey stuff. I don't think there was a single joke within that segment uh, uh, that he did of those questions. He was very serious. Uh, he uh, had almost a journalistic uh, quality to it. And John Oliver can afford to do this because he does a show that doesn't have a lot of guests on, so uh, he doesn't have to worry about uh, uh, the industry turning on him. Well, and you exactly hit on the point I was just about to ask about. Is this does this change the nature for everybody from the Colberts to well, less so John Oliver, but anybody who has a talk show format where I think anyone is now looking at anyone who's ever been any man who's ever been in a position of power or influence and rightly or wrong, long, wrongly now wondering about them and and whether it's it's their compunction as a journalist or as simply a talk show host who's supposed to be entertaining in those late night hours to raise these issues if if it's their responsibility now well i think if you if you bring billy bush on like colbert did obviously the whole point of that was to talk to him about this and they promote the living daylights uh, out of it so i think if if you're going to have a guest who is recently been part of this uh, uh, list, uh, I think, yes, the culture has changed in that in the old days, you just ignored this kind of stuff. And I don't think it should be ignored, even in an entertainment kind of show. If you want to ignore it, don't invite them, would be the uh, uh, case. And if, if you put Dustin Hoffman on a uh, uh, stage with John Oliver as the host, they kind of had to have seen that coming. Yeah, one would agree. Well, fine, let's leave it on a better note. For What's your suggestion of what to watch this week? 
Well, uh, the b- beloved movie Christmas Story, uh, A Christmas Story, which, of course, was based on a uh, 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 short stories, was made into a movie, then made into a uh, Broadway play, and now an adaptation of that Broadway play is going to play on the 17th on Fox Live with uh, Maya Rudolph and Matthew Broderick. So I think that could be fun. I'm a sucker for live uh, uh, presentations, but uh, that's December 17th. And we get to see Maya Rudolph sing. Oh, yes. my goodness. Does she have a good voice? She's sung before on various... Like, I've usually, not heard uh, her. Uh, yeah, she had a variety show very briefly. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, we special, love, I think. We love Matthew Broderick, too. He looks so He looks so like an aged dad there in his, uh, <laughs> his little, little yeah, checkered button-down uh, shirt and tie. <laughs> okay, Bob Thompson, thank you. Thank you, Always Bob a Thompson. pleasure. Thank you, guys. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of television and pop culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tune in tomorrow or join us live at the Boston Public Library for Mass Gaming Commissioner Steve Crosby, the Boston Globe's Shirley Leung, and Congressman Jim McGovern. He'll be calling in from D.C. Our crew is Chelsea Mers, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tresky, Molly Boygon, Christina BNA. Our engineer is John LeClaw Parker. We're a production of WGBH. And I'll be back for one more day tomorrow. You will be back for one more day tomorrow. Very excited. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jared Bowen. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow. If you're in the neighborhood, stop by the Boston Public Library. Meanwhile, have a wonderful afternoon.